I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. Today is our 20th episode and season finale. It's crazy to think that we did this show for more than 20 weeks straight. If you count our special episodes, that is. Which, if you haven't listened to our review of Sinister yet, make sure you do so. John, 20 episodes straight, bro. What a long, strange trip it's been. Well, yeah, it's 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 been it's been a, it's been a beautiful ride. It's been a rocky ride. It's been a fun ride. Um, today we're going to review the 2021 short film "It Knows You Are Alone," which, if you're a fan of full moon movies, you should know about. If not, check it out. It's only about 46 minutes long, and it's well worth your time. Today, we're also talking with the writer, producer, and director, Chris Allender. He's going to spill his guts to us in an exclusive interview, as well as actor B. Dolly. They're going to spill their guts to us in an exclusive interview as well. All that and more today on High on Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. Now it's time for Strain Wreck, the segment where John and I discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in each episode. John, it looks like you got some good shit over there, man. What do you got going on for us today? What are we smoking? I got that Bewitched. It's <laughs> uh, it's from Ocean Grown Seeds. It's a cross between OGS Wizard's Potion and the famous Witch's Weed. It's a 50-50 hybrid. It Witch's has a weed. wide variety of flavors uh, with layers of grape, forest floor, grapefruit. Forest floor. Forest floor. A forest floor dog. Forest floor dog. <laughs> its terpene profile has been described as cupcake-ish. Uh, the effects of Bewitched are therapeutic, muting stress, anxiety, and nausea with ease. And it is a 28.7% THC. Sounds beautiful. Sounds absolutely beautiful. I am so ready to try that. Is that is that the, the fat one you got laying over there? The fat blunt laying there? Yeah, I picked up these. Uh, they're called King Palm. It's a watermelon wave. They're apparently, it's their real leaf rolls. They hold a cram and a half. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, bewitched in there. Uh, it contains terpenes derived from fruit. I don't know much about these, but uh, pretty much you just fill up the uh it's already like wrapped for you with a filter and you just fill it up and then apparently you're supposed to crack this thing and you get some flavor up in it oh shit see the thing is i don't actually like watermelon but uh you know uh watermelon wraps i can tolerate so uh this looks like a high quality wrap so i'm definitely willing to check it out and i threw some of that bruce banner 2.0 ice hash on here as well Ooh, ice hash okay you're going to spark it up? Hell yeah. So uh, I wanted to bring something up, uh, something that's really annoying to me. Stoners and horror films. Why is every stoner projected as an idiot or a dumbass? Like, it's such a cliche, dude. You know what I mean? Like, like you can't be smart and smoke. You know, like, like weed smokers are the dumb bimbos that trip and fall in the woods of drug, drug takers in movies. You know, like, the only ones I can think of off the top of my head is Marty from Cabin in the Woods and Big John from Halloween Kills. They weren't completely helpless. Lori Strode? <laughs> in fairness, we all know if she was a stoner, but her and Andy, uh, Andy, holy shit, I'm fucking ripped already. <laughs> fucking Annie, her and Annie were smoking. But, uh, I mean, in fairness, it is a bad stereotype, but also... 
a lot of stoners do do stuff it doesn't help the cause right but we can't count characters like sean and ed from sean of the dead because they were already dumbasses you know what i mean like they don't count but that was a good call about laurie strode i mean technically i wouldn't call her a stoner but she did she is a final girl that did smoke so i didn't yeah, even, I, I never even considered that i've all i brought that up uh last week well not here with somebody i was talking with but uh i said is laurie strode the first final girl to smoke weed and get to live what about uh what about chuck and chili from friday the 13th part three they're good people they're just fucking burnouts right? <laughs> uh, yeah that's yeah they're definitely burnouts they were probably following the dead dropping acid too yeah another one uh from freddie versus jason freeberg i swear to god for the longest time in high school i thought his name was freebird freddie versus jason it's freeberg and uh i mean it would have made a lot more sense to be freebird than Freeberg, but um, I mean, you mean Jason Muse, and then they couldn't get Jason Muse. It literally said we're still gonna have Jason Muse in the movie, but not Jason Muse. <laughs> yeah, that goalie was pissed about something, <laughs> dude. It was so ridiculous. It was he was so obviously a rip of Jay, where in Curse of Michael Myers, that dude is obviously supposed to be Howard Stern. Correct. I mean, but I did I did enjoy the shit out of Freeberg, though. He was funny. I did enjoy him. I mean, I was a little sad when he got cut in half. Um, but, uh, okay, what about uh, anti to Anton Tobias, um, Devin Sawa from Idle Hands? You ever see Idle Hands? I have not. Okay, yeah, he's, he's again, he's just a... a <laughs> Just a typical stoner, you know. He's he's a dumbass t- in, a, in a in a tight spot, you know. Um, uh, one that I have for you though that I was thinking, Palmer from the thing. That's about the fucking most chillest, <laughs> coolest fucking smoker yes. in a horror film. <coughs> I don't know why I always forget about him when I think about stoners and movies. But yeah, like when I was rewatching it in October, every time it pops up, I'm like, oh yeah, Carpenter liked his stoners. Oh yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's who I want to fucking. Smoke a blunt, smoke a bong, smoke a bowl with and have on here. Oh my God. John Carpenter, that'd be amazing. If that happened, I would legit like. Damn, you just ashing on my rolling tray. Disrespectful. <laughs> my bad, bro. Um, no, if, if smoking with John Carpenter, that's, uh, that, that's bucket list shit right there. That's If that happened, I would gladly roll over and die the next day a happy man. We got, if we got John Carpenter. I would watch Rob Zombie's Halloween for 24 hours straight. So I would die of happiness. You would die of torture. I'm, I'm saying that's that's what I'm willing to sacrifice. It'd be like 28 days later. You'd be like the like one of the monkeys, like strapped to the chair with your eyes held open, forced to watch Rob Zombie's Halloween instead of it being like chaos and and riots in the streets and the news and violence. You're just watching Halloween on loop. Eh, it could be worse. I mean, I still get to talk to John Carpenter in the end, but apparently my brain's fried. <laughs> yeah, that thing tastes pretty good. Yeah, this bewitched is really good. It's uh, it's definitely fruity and it it's it's it smells delicious. Yeah, I think that wraps give it a little bit of flavor as well. So what? It looks like you got the bong <coughs> loaded too, though. Is this is that is that bewitched as well, or are nah, we doing something nah. else? I got uh, I got that for a little bit later. That's that uh, Fozzie. At Chris Jericho, Fozzy, like, like, I, I just like call Chris it Judas in my mind. <laughs> I become, I become, I'm becoming, I'm becoming fucking high. This this has twenty two point four percent THC. I was showing it to you. Well, I showed you both of them, but this one like has like just super dark, like almost like black spots. Oh, that's it. the that's the dark one you were showing me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's the indica one. 
Uh, it has more of like a sour citrus, sweet berry with like maybe maybe like candy undertones. It's a heavier strain that has more sedating effects. That's best suited for nighttime use. That's, Perfect. Yeah, I mean we're recording at night, so after we get after we get done here, I'll just I'll just go right to bed. <laughs> but it's uh, it's also good for treating uh, pain like muscle spasms, and it's good with insomnia, which is always my problem. I mean, it sounds like you definitely picked the right strains for us to uh, to smoke to. I mean, or smoke. I mean, I'm I'm high. Definitely. Uh, thank you for choosing these two strains for us <laughs> no to problem, smoke. Man. I can't wait to get to the next one. We're only on the first one. Um, I was gonna say though. Uh, <laughs> speaking of, we're throwing out open invitations for season two. I guess uh, if Chris Jericho wants to come on and smoke some Fozzie with us, that'd be cool as well. Uh, I mean, he yeah, went on Joe Bob. Uh, uh, yeah, he did. He didn't smoke with Joe Bob. We could get Chris Jericho to smoke. We're basically same level as That'd Joe That'd be amazing. Bob, right? I mean, <laughs> no, no. Fair, fair enough. Um, but uh, anyway, on a side note, though, um, I, I wanted to bring something up, something that I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I talked to you before about what I'm currently reading. I'm reading Bruce Lee's biography by Matthew Polly titled A Life. And uh, it clearly states that Bruce Lee was a big advocate of cannabis he loved it uh, i i had no idea i would have thought that somebody like him like was against it because of like you know just being a lazy stoner and like all that shit but no nah, he was like the 70s eddie bravo dude he uh he actually rolled cigar sized blunts and would pass them out to everyone at parties people would tell him like bruce you don't need that much just roll one and pass it that's how this works but he insisted that everyone had them fatty daddies <laughs> <laughs> he said that uh that the high of cannabis is the ideal mindset to have you're relaxed alert energetic and focused he said that it was a feeling he'd strive to get from being a martial artist because smoking weed all the time isn't doable oh ho, 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 bruce <laughs> if only you lived longer because you don't know brother you don't know we smoke it all so, day so, it is so, doable so you telling me i'm like the eighth degree black belt on him when it comes to smoking weed <laughs> maybe that's the one black belt you could I ever mean, have over the dude um, i mean and also like i'm pretty confident i could outsmoke him right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean uh if the, if bruce lee were alive i would love to i mean arnold schwarzenegger smoked i don't know if he still does but uh <laughs> that video of him with the cigars fucking gets me every time could you imagine like bruce lee and schwarzenegger like smoking like that would just i mean i don't know that stuff's cool to me man bruce lee's smoking that just goes to show you that if someone as philosophical and as intelligent and as inspirational and as iconic as bruce lee smoked to all you listeners out there who don't smoke don't hate it you don't gotta like it but there's obviously something about it if everyone's drawn to it like they are and if even bruce lee approves of it come on that kind of like that that to me like makes if you had an issue with weed knowing that bruce lee condoned it i think it's kind of like oh okay you know touche am i wrong in that do i is that like i kind of feel that he, like his stamp of approval means something <laughs> uh i don't really think honestly to most people now that probably matters <laughs> I mean, we're getting, we're maybe, I mean, I feel like our generation was one of the last ones to really grow up with Bruce Lee. I feel like the younger generations don't really know who he is. Damn shame. Yeah. He put out some badass movies just like, uh, 
I kind of put him with like Eastwood. They kind of made, you know, he was making the Westerns while Bruce Lee was making the martial arts films. And like, we, we grew up with them growing up, but then like after us, like, I don't think, I don't think you would talk to much teenagers or people in their early twenties and they really know anything about Bruce Lee or Clint Eastwood. No, oh, well, that's but, a damn but they shame. They were running Hollywood back then. Yeah. Well, that's their problem. <laughs> but could you imagine though, like, uh, if Bruce Lee had uh, lived long enough to do horror movies, like imagine if it were him that roundhouse Busta Rhymes. I'm sorry though. <laughs> imagine Yo, if it were damn. him that roundhouse. So he teaming up with Michael Dog. No, imagine if it were damn, him. Damn, now he's definitely unbeatable. Halloween ain't ending. Listen, if it was Bruce Lee that roundhouse kicked Michael Myers in Halloween Resurrection, I think that that movie and that whole thing would have. Obviously, everybody shits on the fact that it's Busta Rhymes, but just saying, if Bruce Lee was in there whooping Michael Myers' ass, <laughs> it's a little bit more understandable, and I think uh, it actually would kind of be pretty badass. <laughs> I feel like it'd be even more ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. Are you okay over there, bro? Yeah, I'm dying. It's fine. <laughs> Look, oh shit, I'm baked, man. Let's get uh, let's get sailing into horror history. This week in horror history. So you know, we've had a string of just great movies week after week. So many that you know we couldn't even talk about all of them. And we just pick out a couple each week. Yeah. So, uh, you know, is that ball still rolling? You tell me. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> we have from 1997, Alien Resurrection. And from 2007, 10 years later, Wreck. This is about the only noteworthy movies this week. And I haven't seen Wreck. It did not look good to me when I saw the trailers. And, uh, uh, Alien Resurrection's Alien Resurrection. It's god-awful. They really should have just stopped after two. <laughs> Alien Resurrection is ass on a stick. It's pure, unadulterated ass. It's a disgrace to Sigourney Weaver. It's a disgrace to the Alien franchise. Um, but, uh, no, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's weird that you said that you didn't think REC looked good, because, uh, it's one of if not the best found footage film ever in my opinion it's short and to the point it's claustrophobic and panic inducing it's demonic possession by accidental biological warfare it's absolutely horrifying i fucking love that movie definitely we're gonna have to get baked and watch that i mean i'll watch it i've watched a lot of shit so take my word for it it's good <laughs> I now, mean, Alien Resurrection. That's what I was going to say. Let's get into the Alien Resurrection talk. On paper, I tell you, the first three actors, Sigourney Weaver, Winona Ryder, Ron Perlman. You think, oh, okay. Okay. Like, Maybe this could be something, I can right? understand you don't like them, but they're not bad actors, even if you don't like the kind of movies they make. You can't right. say, oh, you know, they're terrible at what they do. They're credible actors, credible names, yeah. I mean, listen, I'm going to give you the Wikipedia description of... Uh, uh, for the cast, Sigourney Weaver is Ripley 8, reprising her role from the previous three Alien films. After sacrificed herself to the Alien Queen, gestating inside her an Alien 3, she's been cloned using blood samples so the military may extract a Queen embryo. Like, it... <laughs> it's it's uh, bad. Yeah, that, that, that story was reaching. The whole series was reaching at that point. I mean, do we... It's It's weird, it's like... James Cameron puts the stamp on 
the second film in franchises. After Terminator 2, they could never get the series back on track. It should have ended. After Aliens, same thing. It should have ended. Have we ever lived up to Aliens since then? Even come close? No. <clears throat> Aliens is... an Alien and Aliens are two different movies. Two different movies like genres. Directed by two different people. By two different people. But it doesn't feel like it's it ruined the universe in any way. It felt like they both fit together just fine. I thought it elevated it. I thought it was like, where could we, how could we take the slow burn of Alien and turn it into high-paced military action? Yeah, and I mean, I still love uh, Pac-Man's line. Game over, man. I know, and uh, Michael Bean is great in that movie. You know, like what a great cast. But uh, look at that. We get we we we're talking about Alien Resurrection. <laughs> End up on Aliens. To talk about the better ones. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But no, uh, that that little hybrid, uh, the hybrid thing at the end of the film, man, it's just hideous. It's stupid looking. Um, like Alien. I don't. It's one of those ones where even in, in, when I'm watching movies, uh, and I decide to go through a series. Then, regardless of the bad ones, I'll still watch them in order. And Alien Resurrection is one of those ones where, like, I either skip it or if I do it, I legit have like the disc in the Blu-ray tray, and I'm just staring at it, going, <sighs> like, it's just it's a dreadful watch. It's almost like, why am I doing this to myself? I only own one and two. I don't see a reason to really watch Resurrection again. I don't know. It's like I like to keep brush brushing up on my history, so I want to keep it fresh in my mind. But I don't know why. I should just like, let it die. I, it's fine, bud. You can let it go. Yeah, I definitely should. I, I need to save the what brain cells I have left for better shit. And you know what? I'm sorry. I can't <laughs> believe I forgot another actor in it. Uh, Brad Dourif. That's right. That's so right. So yeah, he plays a, a gringy, a grimy little character. He, he does play a lot of grimy characters. Though. He does. He's a good actor, though. He I liked when he was the exterminator in Graveyard Shift. That was good. I was uh, going to say um, Josh Whedon, who uh, he's canceled now or whatever, right? Josh Whedon. Josh, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he's canceled now, I believe. Uh, he he uh, worked as a screenwriter uh, for 20th Century Fox. His initial screenplay had a third act on Earth with a final battle for Earth itself. Uh, Whedon wrote five versions of the final act, none of which ended up in the film. I mean... Yeah, I mean, well, you know, uh, Whedon did some good stuff, man. He did Buffy. He did the uh, the Avengers, the first Avengers film. I mean, he was credible, you know. But uh, yeah, he's been canceled, and rightfully so, um, you know. But uh, I mean, it's surprising that he actually penned this because it's such a dud. Yeah, and uh, Sigourney Weaver like wanted to use Alien Three to get out of the franchise, and they roped her back in. They, they roped Strode her back her. in. She liked Whedon's script. I don't know why, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why either. Um, yeah, it sucks that our f season finale, this is our horror history. Yeah, yeah. Is uh, these two movies. And then, uh, I never read them, but did you ever get into the comic series that followed this? It was uh, Alien versus Predator versus Terminator. I, uh, I do. I own, I own one. I own one. I've never read it, but I own one. I still have it on the bag and board. I got it at a comic book sale. Uh, I do own several Alien comic books, though. Um, uh, Fire and Stone. Um, there's several, actually. But, uh, yeah, um, the only the only one with the uh, Terminator involved. I own only own one. Yeah, there was, <clears throat> there was only ever four made. But, uh, I mean, the cover looks awesome. But it does also sound ridiculous when you say it out loud, though. 
It's pure fantasy. It's pure comic book <laughs> it shit. It sounds like a seven-year-old after like seeing all three of these movies was like, you know what? They should all fight each other. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I feel like like that was they they like I said I haven't read it, but I feel that it was probably definitely more aimed towards a younger audience. I can only imagine, especially back then. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, we'll end our history here for, for this season. If you don't like what we're saying, if if you're disappointed, just go back and listen to our other episodes. We got some <laughs> awesome horror histories there. And uh, now it's time for Puff Puff Ask, the segment of our show where Drew and I answer questions that you send us through Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at High on Horror 420, and through email at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com. Yo, man. Puff Puff Ask. All right. I'll start us off here with a question from a loyal listener named Joey Medina from Ontario, California. Yo, uh, I got that, uh, I got that Fozzie shit. Should I, oh, shit. should I throw some more of that Brucey B on top? <laughs> Brucey B? Hell yeah, let's do it, man. It's <laughs> the right. finale. Yep, go ahead. All right. Um, Joey is a big fan, actually, and he listens every Monday uh, while he's at work. And I want to say, uh, we want to say, thank you so much for the kind words and the support, Joey. And he, he comments on a lot of our stuff, too. Yeah, all over social media. Yeah. Um, John and I will hit the blunt for you, or the bong, either, rather. <laughs> um, we appreciate you, Joey. Um he asks, uh, since the holidays are approaching, my favorite Christmas-themed horror is Night of the Comet. That's a great fucking movie. Um, I've loved it since first seeing it at 13 in the theater. It's funny, scary, and it's got valley girls. What's not to love? Do you guys have a favorite Christmas-themed horror movie that you watch every year as well? Damn, my bad. I'm dropping lighters over here and shit. <laughs> um, Spoiler alert, we're actually planning a Christmas episode where we're going to talk about our favorite genre holiday pictures, so I'm not going to go into too much info uh, and, and name you uh, a list or go in, go, you know, I'm not going to embellish on it, but to answer your question, uh, Santa's Slay from 2005 starring Bill Goldberg, the wrestler, and directed by David Steeman. I mean, anything's uh, got to be better than his wrestling skills. <laughs> I cannot go a year without watching Santa's Slay. It's become an absolute essential for me around the holidays, but there's a lot more I watch around then as well. So make sure that uh, everybody tunes into our Christmas special to hear what John and I have to say and name off our Christmas list of horror films. Yeah, um, I guess I probably shouldn't give away my favorite, but I think everybody can easily guess it. So maybe I should just go out and say it anyway, but it's it's Black Christmas. The original is my favorite, uh, but another one is Trash Day. That movie is not good. Silent Night, Deadly Night Me 2. Too, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not a fan. It's not good, but I don't, dude, Trash Day just makes up for that whole movie. <laughs> I disagree, but okay. <laughs> dude, I watched, I forget when, when Joe Bob hosted it, but I watched it through the whole thing just to get to that part. You're going to give me shit for the, for the fucking rake fight scene and hobgoblins, <laughs> but turn around and, and, and say that shit that you just said to me. Dude, it's everything like his head, like the head bobble, like everything. Yeah, I'm not a fan. That movie, some people love it, some people hate it. I never got it. It's like Slumber Party Massacre 2. I never got that shit either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Silent Night, Deadly Night's a good one too. Um, oh man. That fucking Fozzie getting me. I forget what. I had another I had another one lined up and I couldn't I just completely lost it now. I don't know. <laughs> you got any more horror or well fuck man. Any more fucking uh horror themed Christmas ones? No, no, no. I'm gonna save them for the uh 
Christmas episode, I'm only going to say Santa Slay today. All right. Um, what's your overall favorite Christmas movie? That's not horror. Okay. That, that, that's not horror. That's I've... not necessarily horror, rather. Um, okay. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. I think It's a Wonderful Life is one of the greatest movies ever made, period. And I think it's the best Christmas movie. Um, that's my academic answer. My answer, as opposed to like getting baked and just like enjoying myself on the holidays, is uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You and Josh both have the same same one. It's a Wonderful Life. I watched it for the first time last year. I even watched the extended cut because Josh said that's the one I should watch. It's like twenty minutes too long. Everybody hates my <laughs> like. That's a like. You can't tell people that. Like I don't. This movie's like sacred to people. My mine is ridiculous. It's Die Hard. It's a Christmas movie. I don't care what you say. I mean, like they, everybody. Uh, the one argument is, oh, Bruce Willis said it's not. Yeah, well, guess what? The person who wrote the goddamn movie, you know, the person that wrote it, made the story, created it. They said it's a Christmas story. There's like, I mean, they have Christmas songs in it. Granted, they're not traditional. It takes place like at a Christmas party at work, like. There's enough Christmas in there. It just also has guns and violence and German terrorists. You go ahead and you justify it being a Christmas movie, and I'm going to justify It's a Wonderful Life not being 20 minutes too long. I mean, I'm right, you're wrong. That's all we got to say. Well, I mean, on the other side of that, I'm right and you wrong. No, 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 but seriously, I do. I do like Die Hard as well. Uh, I do disagree with what you said about It's a Wonderful Life, but that's cool. That's cool. You, you can't always share the great stuff with everybody, you know. Um, but, uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm good on that question. Ben from Raleigh, North Carolina said, you guys talked about Freddie and Jason on your Halloween discussion episode, which was fantastic. By the way, I laughed a lot. Thank you. I wanted to know who you guys thought won in Freddie versus Jason. My friend and I still argue about it. I, I'll go first. I mean, I feel like it's pretty clear. I mean, Everybody talks about Freddie Winkin, but like his head ain't on his body. Jay Jason just carrying that out. <laughs> okay, well, it's 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 uh good that you know we didn't talk about this beforehand because I disagree. I say Freddie won. Um, I think Jason won with assistance, and he hasn't. He wasn't even the one to decapitate Freddie. So he assisted Freddie won by DQ. He assisted the decap because he was too fucked up from what Freddie had done to him. Freddie got up and was still about to kill. All Jason had in him was stabbing him and he dropped his ass back in the water. He didn't do shit. It was the uh, the female lead who uh, took Freddie's head off. I think Freddie won because he beat Jason's ass. And the thing is, I'm a Jason fan. It hurts to say that. But Freddie fucked him up. I mean, I think Freddie fucked him up. Dude stabbed his fucking eyes out. I mean, Jason couldn't do shit but float in the water by the end. And even with the one arm Freddy had, he was still trying to kill Laurie with, you know, and Will. Um, I mean, he did stab him with his own claw. Freddy was unstoppable in that movie, though. Um, so between Freddy and Jason, uh, I stand we, by uh, Freddy winning. Laurie beat Freddy with Jason's help. I Jason didn't beat Freddy in any shape, way, shape, or form. Sorry. I can't believe the slander. <laughs> as much as you love Jason, a lot of Jason he fans can't take the, the heat, whole man. Movie? It took Freddy forever to get a kill because Jason was just taking them all. He didn't dominate the whole movie. He dominated Jason. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You're the sports fan, not me. When you have a favorite team, okay, this is the best scenario that I can break it down for, the best metaphor that I can break it down. 
when you have a, a good a team that you're behind, a favorite team, and they get their ass beat in a one-sided game or almost one-sided game, you got to take that heat. You're going to take that loss. You're still a fan. You got to take that one on the chin. For Jason fans, including myself, got to take this one on the chin. Laurie's the one that beat Freddie. It wasn't Jason. Um, yeah, Jason picked his head up after someone else cut it off. And uh, I'm a Jason fan, but that's the way it is. It hurts to say it. And look. You can argue that he won. That's fine. I'm just saying you can't say that Freddy dominated the whole movie. You're rewriting the narrative that Jason was just useless. No, I'm not trying to say Jason was useless. That's not what I'm saying at all. Jason was a beast and Jason put up a fight. But I mean, like when you look at the body of work, like if, if we were judges, if we're MMA fans, right? We like the UFC. If we were judges and we're watching everything that got done to them, what they're doing. And you're seeing like. Jason, Freddy's kind of winning the stand-up. He's ducking and dodging, hitting Jason with propane tanks, stabbing him with fucking, uh, what are those things called? Um, Those rods. Those yeah. rods that fall yeah, through. Yeah, impale, Yeah, impale Jason to the ground. Then that fucking big-ass thing of, uh, that big-ass thing is swinging around and smacking Jason. And, and then, like, you know, like I said, the, the fingers cutting off, the eyes getting cut through. I mean, Jason rips his arm off. But besides that, it's just like a couple of punches but and some machete wax. drive his fingers through him? He, he kind of he kind of was his like he took his, his, his nubs his fingers. nubs yeah <laughs> I mean Jason's putting up a fight I agree I agree I just I don't think he won he came back like here I'll put it in terms for you he was getting rocked and then he hits him with his own claw he just hit that sweet chin music and just fell on top <laughs> for the victory you know what that's like <laughs> yeah I guess I guess I can get that you know you got to take a win where you can get it but. I mean, yeah, a lot of people consider that Jason's holding Freddy's head, that that means Jason won, and I honestly never saw it like that. Oh, I don't think we're going to change each other's opinion on this. <laughs> Either way, I still love the movie, but though. That's all that matters. I think we can argue that if it was C.J. Graham, he would have won. <laughs> yeah, I could probably agree with that. I'd even give it to Kane Hodder. Oh, well, yeah, Kane, too. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Well, thank you for writing in. Hey. Um you know what? We're going to throw in a third question for the Oh, season okay. Let's do it. Let's uh, do it. Our boy Kenny had a question. All right, Kenny. If we, on the podcast, if we could interview anybody from horror, not not the actors, so like, you're not saying Bruce Campbell, you would be saying Ash Williams. Like, Oh, like a, a, who, interview somebody in character. Not even in character, just like the character themselves, like, oh, shit, that okay. you see on the screen, like. Who would you want to interview? Like, so, like, like who pure fantasy. Like, who would I, I like, just right out of the, right off the screen? Who would I interview for the paw? Uh, Doctor okay. Loomis. Uh, I mean, right. that would be a crazy dude. That whole episode would be so deep. You imagine how much dude, weed we'd smoke? It'd be so deep. It'd be turned into this we'd whole have psychological a whole breakdown. Of just Doctor Loomis episode, just talking <laughs> about Michael through the years. Since when did the movie reviews turn into like breaking down people becoming <laughs> serial killers every week? It's gonna go. It's just gonna be one episode for each year of Michael's life. You go from like each six, each seven. I, I, I guess my uh, my answer would be. Um, pluck elvira right out of mistress of the dark because that would be a hilarious interview. oh man i feel like that's a cheat <laughs> <laughs> that would be a hilarious interview oh i'm trying to think of who else that's an interesting question though i like that question i like fantasy questions i, mean, I would be worried he would try to kill me but chucky 
<laughs> oh my god, that'd be amazing if you just sat here on the table, like smoking a blunt <laughs> yeah. with us, talking shit. Yeah, like you're like you're over here to my right. If he was just at the other far end of the table, you in like a booster seat, just, just talking <laughs> shit on Andy Barkley. <laughs> yeah, we, we, get, we, get, we get Alex Vincent back on. <laughs> no, that yeah, Chucky, like the doll. That's yeah. awesome. That would be hilarious. I'd just be worried he'd try to kill us. I mean, he would definitely kill us, but I don't think that he sees anything in us where he'd want to trade our bodies. He'd be like, nah, I'll stay in this doll. <laughs> you got anybody else you can think of? I just burned the shit out of about, out of both of us. You just walked through it like I didn't see nothing. <laughs> I don't need to acknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I guess, I mean, you already said it, but I'll, I'll, I'll drop it anyway. Ash, I, I mean, think. Yeah. If you, if not from, uh, from the movies, though. Ash from the show. From Ash vs. Evil Dead. Like, older ridiculous more even more ridiculous ash that would be like yeah yeah that that would Elvira and ash you want to know who who i feel like we'd be interviewing it would be like an older uh theo vaughn i feel like he would just have (laughs) these ridiculous stories he would like just make up i mean uh what about uh all right so some people say that it's not horror and they're wrong uh what about beetlejuice imagine smoking a blunt with beetlejuice yeah, he 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 weird though. Like, <laughs> no, I'm talking about I'm talking about like Michael Keaton Beetlejuice. Yeah. I okay. Mean, okay. Not Howard Stern Beetlejuice. <laughs> I mean, uh, would I smoke a blunt with Howard Stern's Beetlejuice? <laughs> no, no, Michael. I Keaton know. No, 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 no. I know. I know. I know. That's not the question. I'm just pondering that as a follow up. <laughs> I feel like yeah, but I feel like after I smoked it, I would give it to him and just like not give it back. <laughs> Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know what, you got to keep it. <laughs> just, yeah. just so I could say I smoked with them. I would smoke with both of them. <laughs> yeah, I, can't, you... I mean, I'm sure there's others I'm thinking of that just aren't popping to mind. Uh, you, uh, the dude from uh. You know, think of a cabin in woods we were mentioning earlier. Marty. Stone- yeah, Marty, Marty. Yeah. Yeah. If smoking <laughs> with him would be cool. But he would have to bring on that mug. I want that, I want that coffee mug. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Uh, again, another Bruce Campbell one. What if we did him as Sebastian Half uh, from uh, Bubba Hotep? Yeah, that would be a good one. Or uh, like doing Jason or Michael Myers would be hilarious because they just sit there silent. Like, um... No, nah, they'd definitely kill us. <laughs> No, I can't remember. Uh, I'm so terrible with names, man. Who was the talk show host that had Jason on? Arsenio Hall. Yes, there you go. It I'm was so uh, terrible Kane, with names. The Kane Hodder one. Yeah, like that. That that shit he cracks me up. He also had the Ultimate Warrior on. Oh jeez, dude, that shit was ridiculous. Are you, how many more wrestling references are you going to drop this episode, dude? You got to see like the, compared to two interviews of like Ultimate Warrior just saying gibberish. It makes no sense, and then just like Kane Hodder literally doing an interview where he just sits there i would like to see the ultimate warrior cut a promo on jason (laughs) (laughs) that would be ridiculous (laughs) all right well uh all right we're gonna end that there we're rambling because we're baked um so uh yeah um this is our season finale as we've mentioned so don't forget to write in your questions to us so we can get them ready for season two um you know season two is going to be happening uh picking up january 10th so make sure you write in some questions to us uh so we can you know compile them and you know maybe you'll make it on the air next season um you can write into us on instagram and facebook and twitter at high on horror 420 
or email us at highonhorror420 at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Thank you all who have written us this season, and thank you all who are going to write us for next season. We truly appreciate hearing from you. And now it's time to get into our review slash discussion of this week's film, It Knows You Alone. It Knows You're Alone is a 2021 film directed by and written by Chris Alexander, starring B. Dolly and Allie Chapel. And after finding an old nautical phone washed up on the shore, Natalie begins having dreams of the device ringing, followed by the presence of a shrouded woman in black. Natalie's already fragile grip on reality begins to slip. This is obviously a micro-budget effort across the board, but we like what we saw. Uh, the poster art for this one really pulled me in. I like how, although it's only 46 minutes long, that it's still paced well enough to be a slow burn with the dramatic payoff ending. Um, I genuinely like this one because I had no idea where it was going. Uh, you alright? You okay? Um, that ice cream cake got me dog. <clears throat> Oh, what is, what is that? Let me hit that. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, season finale. That's a vape. Uh, it knows you're alone. It doesn't follow any template or typical structure. So I was invested. Um, there's a lot where nothing happens, but there's still enough going on not to bore you. And Natalie, the lead actor played by uh, B. Dolly, is very nice on the eyes. Um, uh, yeah, uh, they but, carry the movie well for uh, a generally unknown actor. I was going to say they did a really good job. Um, yeah, and also there's a lot of times uh, where they're alone and have to, have to uh, just kind of carry the scene by themselves with uh, with no audio. Well, audio, no uh, dialogue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's 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 a it's almost a, it's a silent movie for most of the movie. That's true, and uh, that nautical phone, have you ever seen a nautical phone before that? No, I have not. I have not, um, but it, it looks pretty freaking cool. Yeah, because I, when I was reading the description about the phone, I'm like, what the like, what the hell kind of phone? Like, I've seen some old phones. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is this? Well, uh, we did not watch this together when we watched it, so like, what were your initial thoughts on it when you first saw it? Um... It was it was interesting and it I mean it felt there's times where you could say it felt slow but it wasn't it wasn't really slow it it's a short movie but I feel like it plays it plays out just right with its pacing and sometimes when you're watching it in the I think the beginning it feels like it's a little slow but then after the end it makes sense agreed you know and uh, uh, Natalie lives by herself in a house and it's apparent that uh she doesn't have a full basket of apples now uh she's going a little cuckoo in solitude and uh broke off her lesbian relationship with sasha uh played by ali chapel um for no apparent reason she's just going mad uh the big question is did her finding the phone really bring something supernatural into her life like was the phone a conduit uh, for something supernatural or was it the conduit for her insanity to let loose and make her lose what was left of her marbles that's the big question of the film it's like it's like uh wrecking season three to walk and do 
<laughs> back, back, back when the show was still good. He was remember he was getting phone calls. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I gave up <laughs> after season two, but yeah. Nah, I feel like you were there for a little bit longer than that, but like, like the prison stuff was pretty good. But you uh, remember more about my watching it than I remember. It's, yeah, you're yeah. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll go back. I'm just making the reference there. Um, yeah, I mean. It's well done. It, I like I was saying with uh, also with the plot. Uh, there's a lot that's not explained, but it works in its favor. It's mm-hmm. just it's like it's a little capsule of some world somewhere, and it's just things are happening here that don't you know normally happen. It's just some special place. It's it kind of has like its own like world feel to it. I agree, and I almost like uh, I, I like. Um... I like that it takes that it's a modern movie, but I almost feel that this movie is, um, I feel that it would have gone over better or just been more appreciated by more people. If it was an older film, like this is a total VHS movie. This is totally a movie that like you find in like a box or a crate or like a flea market of VHS and you're like, Hey, I've never heard of this one. It's this little short film from this, you know, independent film company and you pop it in and it's everything that you want out of an old school, like independent, cheaply made vhs movie it's exactly that it's just now it's made in a more digital era yeah i feel like it fits like it would have fit in real good in like the early to mid 90s agreed agreed like right up there with uh tales from the quad dead zone and all that stuff like yeah totally would have would have gone right in with that i just see this as being one of those movies like with a cool with the cool cover you know the poster art just being one of those like and everybody you know just going ape shit for it and spending a ton of money on it i would love to actually see full moon do a vhs of that so i want any, the poster i know I do, I do too i'd like a little i mean i don't have room for any more big posters but a little 11 by 17 would do just fine yeah that would be cool um yeah and i like the short runtime it doesn't it doesn't try to stretch this out to an hour and a half movie which i think if it was that long it, it wouldn't have worked as well a hundred percent and and, I, and that's something about full moon movies where a lot of their films aren't even complete feature length it's always like some of them are like an hour and 15 like barely over an hour like they they just tell they just they let the movie be what it is and then cut it off they don't they're not worried about dragging it into a, a full-fledged movie and i think that works a lot of the time and uh the other thing yeah with the short run times it always makes me think of the universal monsters most of those were like 75 85 minutes yeah yeah and, and uh, like they a, did what they needed to do when they got out exactly exactly and uh there's another full moon movie that i like um called dog graveyard and it's the same thing i think it might be an hour and 17 maybe even an hour and 12 minutes and it's like it just feels like a complete movie you know it's like it doesn't have like they, they i like the movies where they just tell the story and get out that's i think that a lot of people when they're given like it has to be because studios will tell people that to be like oh, we want a two-hour movie or the, the time limit's going to be two hours and ten minutes so you have to live up to that whereas if you're able to just let the movie be what it is and then say yeah it ended on page 70 it's only a 70 minute movie like that's how it should be like you're forcing it and dragging things out otherwise yeah i wish i wish we had more short movies here i mean the this is a ridiculous example but like i enjoy some of those like five 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 second films Oh yeah, yeah. Really, like some of those are done pretty well. Like sometimes I don't want to sit down. I mean, I know hour and a half is not necessarily a lot of time, but there's time. You know, I just want to watch something for like an hour. I don't. I don't want to sit there for like an hour forty two hours. Yeah, 
I know. And especially when it's like, you know, like lights out, for example, if you look at that short film lights out, it's only like a few minutes long and they dragged it into a full length movie. Now the movie still works. I do like the movie and I did actually, the movie did scare the shit out of me in a few scenes, but, um, but the short movie, the short film pulls off what the 90 minute movie did in just like five minutes or less or whatever, seven minutes, whatever it is. So again, it's like, again, like, yeah, you made it a movie, but a full, a full length movie, but not every story needs to be. Sometimes it's better to just be like, get in, get out and be done with it. Yeah, totally agree. And, uh, I think we're both interested to see, uh, where things go for Chris from here. Yeah. I think that, uh, Chris Alexander's on a lot of good movies and, uh, he's very active and he's got such a positive attitude and such a knowledge of horror. I'm always looking forward to seeing what he puts his name on, man. Yeah. Like, uh, was it Necropolis? Yep. That was a good one. Oh yeah. I love that one. <clears throat> And uh, I think uh, now we can move on to Burn and Learn, the segment of our show where Drew and I give you some behind-the-scenes facts of the movie we're talking about. And in this case, it knows you're alone. Oh. Hmm. Burn and Learn. The house used in the film was the same house used in the remake of Anne of Green Gables starring Martin Sheen. It knows you're alone was shot in three days just outside of Toronto. The opening theme music is by Jess Franco's frequent composer, Daniel White, and was used in the Franco film, Emmanuel, Tender and Perverse. The film's cinematographer was A.M. Frank, a pseudonym Jess Franco often employed. Chris Alexander, in this case, is A.M. Frank and shot the picture himself under the name as a tribute and the muddy the fact he was basically a one-man crew. The dark lounge piece used during Natalie's undressing and the closing credits is by Piero Piccioni from the obscure Italian thriller An Open Tomb, An Empty Coffin. B. Dolly was once a newscaster on the notorious Naked News show about a decade ago. And yes, they really read the news fully unclothed. The film was built around a near... I'm sorry. The film was built around a real nearly 100-year-old Russian submarine sound phone chris alexander bought and loved he thought it looked predatory and liked the idea of it being some sort of karmic portal to evil madness whatever it is this is the second time chris alexander has used the ship uh, the first was in blood dynasty the ship was a real tall ship sailed to ontario from quebec by the owner with the intent to open it as a restaurant the owner died suddenly and it left the boat mired in the muck it stayed there for a decade as no one owned it then some assholes lit it on fire. Now it's a hazard, rust, uh, just monster overgrown with weeds. And the city's currently taking bids from interested parties to tow it away. This is the first film Chris made for Full Moon under the Delirium Films imprint. A spinoff he created from the magazine he founded with producer Charlie Band. The location and surrounding areas were also used in Chris's film necropolis legion the intent was to create a kind of world where haunted things happen he liked the idea of connecting his little movies by themes locations ideas big thanks to our guest chris alexander for those facts those were given to us exclusively by him personally uh you will not find those facts online um you will eventually i'm sure but rest assured you heard them here on high on horror first now let's talk to our first guest of the night the man himself, Chris Alexander.
Our guest today is a Canadian director, producer, writer, and composer. He is also known for his work as a film critic, journalist, and magazine editor. In fact, he was the third editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine and the co-founder and editor of Delirial magazine. Recently, he wrote, directed, and composed the music for It Knows You're Alone, a short film available now to stream on Full Moon Features. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for being on High on Horror. Well, thanks very much, guys. I I, uh, really appreciate um, you taking the time for me. Uh, no problem no problem at all we're glad to have you uh it's it's you know it's it's cool to talk to you man we appreciate your work um i wanted to uh start off real quick i want to ask you uh all right so what made you want to get involved in filmmaking and who inspired you well i I just i've loved movies uh all all films all cinema since i was some type of memory since i was a little boy i had a lot of family members that were into into films my father my late father was um you know, pretty much my a beacon when it came to like progressive rock and roll and psychedelic rock and film soundtracks and uh, Twilight Zone. Uh, the Twilight Zone was a huge part of my life. But um, yeah, I had an uncle. I have an uncle. He's still with me, with us. He's slow, but he was really almost savant-like into collecting Aurora model kits and monsters and comic books. And he loved horror and King Kong. And, and he had this museum. Everything was meticulously designed and placed in, in, his, in his room when I was little growing up. And it was this like shrine mecca to the macabre. And uh, so that was a huge thing, just kind of like being scared but fascinated and, and just totally into into this weird world that he kind of lived in literally lived in because he was, he was slow. So he was kind of a nice, I always kind of attributed him to being kind of later to like Frankenstein's monster. He was kind of this, this uh, beautiful kind of misunderstood creature on the fringe who uh, was just so into this stuff. Anyways, I digress. So that was kind of like my real entry points of being fascinated with weird shit and uh and kiss too that was a big deal i was discovering gene simmons i thought he was a real monster and and uh, the cover of love gun in the library i was like what the fuck is this anyways <laughs> uh, so it was all that shit in comic books there's it's all different moving parts and pieces that kind of led me to where i i would go and and then later on discovering fangoria and and actually seeing the wizard behind the curtain and how these uh, these incredible fantasies were actually made and constructed and all these players and i just got really into not just wanting to watch movies but know everything i could know about all these films and again i loved all cinema but it was specifically horror monsters fantasy uh, dark science fiction, not Star Wars and shit. I wasn't, I would like the toys. I wasn't into that shit, but I liked like weird science fiction. Like heavy metal was a huge deal for me when I was a kid. I was like six or seven and I was watching heavy metal. I shouldn't have been, but <laughs> you know, they had the animated, the R rated animated with boobs and blood and all kinds of nasty things that weren't meant for children. But I was really into that. And, uh, and stuff like Demon Seed and then 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And, uh, so anyways, all this shit happened. I knew I wanted to make movies. It wasn't an easy thing to do. Uh, now it is. Uh, my, my 14-year-old son just won the uh, George A. Romero Foundation uh, short film thing for, for best cinematography for his little short film that he made. That's he's, awesome. You know, I know, well, they can, but, but I mean, they can film all this stuff on their devices. That's amazing. But back then, it was, it was an imp- almost like Mission Impossible. And especially being in Toronto, there was no way you were going to be 
in that world. But through various serendipitous uh, things and, and really just sticking close to loving this stuff, being in film school, dropping out of film school, starting a rock band, and trying to find every entry point I could, and then finding it with journalism. Uh, for it was first with the magazine called Rue Morgue, and then later on with Fangoria, and then taking over Fangoria, which was insane. Uh, really being having a front row seat into that world and getting to know everybody personally as well as professionally um, really enabled me to be able to um, to eventually pursue that uh, that dream of actually bringing, uh, you know, not just writing about films and not just making the music for films that were in my head, which is what I was doing, but actually making my own kind of brand of cinema, which is an amalgam of all these different things that I liked. Absolutely. I have to go back. I'm a big fan of the Twilight Zone as well. What's your favorite episode from the original series? It's it's hard to say. You know, Rod Serling, I think, is the greatest moralist, the greatest writer of, mm-hmm. in American history. I mean, I, uh, really, I put him up there with Mark Twain. I mean, but uh, so that first season, especially when he wrote almost all of them, and it really was his answer to CBS and all the sponsors that were always cutting his teleplays for dealing with too many different social issues and he thought that he could use the horror and science fiction to sneak that in the back door so that first season is just like firing on every known cylinder uh it's hard to pinpoint one but certainly episodes like um the monsters are due on maple street and and the lonely specifically the lonely and i I don't know why but that episode with them What's his face, Jack? Uh, oh my God, I'm gonna draw a blank here. It's too late in Toronto. But Gene Marsh is the robot. The guys on the prison planet and uh, Ted Knight and the other guys. They drop off this robot to keep him company, and he ends up falling in love with this woman. There's his only company, and then at the end, he has to. They give him a pardon, and they're going to rescue him, but he can only take a couple things. He's trying to bring his lover robot with him, but they're trying to tell him it's not real. It's just a fucking robot, and then they end up blowing its head off. And it's just, it's just like that really hit me. Um, so, but it's hard to say, I mean, uh, walking distance, that's another one that really uh, moves me. And then later on when they got weirder, like to serve man. And, um, oh, that's fuck. I mean, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just the, tw- to me, it was always when I was a little, it was always the third act twists. You were looking for the most perverse twist. And then as I got older and you start living and losing and, and, you know, all those misfortunes that befall every person when they age, you start to appreciate some of the, the quieter moments of the twilight zone, like walking distance and things. And so, yeah, to me, that's the, to me, every road leads back to, uh, to the twilight zone. Really. I would have to say my favorite, it's been consistent now. It used to change, but I always like uh obsolete man with uh, Burgess Meredith. Yeah, well, Burgess Meredith was in so many. I mean, they were so good, but that one is a nightmare. That is a dystopian nightmare. That's a masterpiece. That is a really good one. Yeah, any any of any of the Burgess Meredith ones are are pretty much my favorites. Yeah, even that fourth season um, where they when he they flipped it to an hour and it didn't quite work. There's still a lot of gems in there. A lot of the one that he's in called Printer's Devil is especially good because because of him i mean he was just such a great performer and he really yeah i mean for sure some of the highlights of the show were definitely when when burgess meredith would show up absolutely yeah and rod, and rod serling's uh little monologue at the end on totalitarian governments is great and uh the other one the other one i like i i can't remember the name of it 
Uh, the guy works at the bank. He can hear people's thoughts, and he hears the guy. It's been there for like 15, 20 years, and he, he just always thinks every day, man, I could rob this bank, and nobody would know, and he starts freaking out. And then at the end, he just tells him like, oh, I just that's my little dream each day. Yeah, that's again. I can't really forget. I forget the name. It's uh, the one where he flips the the coin into the box, and miraculously it ends up on the side. And then for twenty four yes. hours or whatever, he gets gets that gift. And that was a Darren. Um, the guy played Darren on Bewitched, and I forget yep. his name too. Yeah, yeah. And the old the old guy. Yeah, yeah, the old guy in that too. He he was in a couple zone episodes as well. He was in the one with them. Oh my god! I'm, it's honestly like my brain. You know, I, I told you guys I don't I don't smoke weed or anything, but I feel like completely out of it right now. So I mean, it's appropriate. I feel all hazy and delirious. It's wonderful, but uh, I can't pick up these names. I forgot. But that one that one where the, the guy was in the, the fugitive who played uh, you know the kind of guy trying to catch Kimball. The fuck was his name? Canadian actor. Anyways, he's got this. Uh, rings on this player piano, and it starts to kind of reveal truths about everybody at this party that he's throwing he's a real piece of shit theater critic and his butler is that same old guy from that episode with the uh the coin anyways we could go on all night this, this <laughs> is honestly the greatest show of all time and it's even the bad i always say twilight zones like like sex from a male perspective and this is such a misogynist thing to say but but there's no <laughs> such thing as a bad twilight zone episode any every episode is welcome and good yeah uh what did you have any horror movies or maybe a few that like really pulled you into the genre? Yeah. Well, I said it's 78's invasion of the body snatchers. I used to have a, um, uh, when I was four years old, I had a comic book. That was about, I loved comics. Of course I loved all that shit and whatever I could get my hands on. That was garish and colorful and larger than life and, and even violent and monstrous. But there was one uh, uh, issue I have. I don't know what it was, but Batman was fighting a villain named the blockbuster. And uh, so this is 78. When you flipped it over, there was a poster for invasion of the body snatchers. And if you know that film, the original teaser poster was as the beautiful 70s posters were. They were very impressionistic. And there were the four heroes running along and their shadows were underneath them. And it was like they were roots going into the ground. And I couldn't even, I could read sort of, and I had to ask my dad, what is, what is this? And he's telling me it's this new movie that's coming. I asked, can I see it? No, no, you cannot. Even though it was PG, PG back then was, was hell on earth. I mean, Gremlins was PG and that's not a PG movie. Well, Gremlins is romper room compared to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So that's fair. That's when they invented PG thirteen. But in the seventies, nobody gave a shit. It was there was a different world. The gates had opened up, and as long as you didn't have a lot of hardcore sex, they could horror movies were sneaking all kinds of wacky things in the, into uh, Jaws was PG, and Jaws is pretty intense, right? Even now. But anyways, there was a, so in seventy nine, my parents went out to go see Apocalypse Now at the theater, and they stuck me with a babysitter. And I, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was on Toronto TV at its premiere, and I was like, oh my god, I'm like, Apocalypse five, like I got to see this movie. And they told the babysitter, do not let him watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers. She's like, no problem, no problem. Anyway, she falls asleep, and I'm like, oh, I know exactly what channel this fucker's on. And I pressed right to that channel, right at the moment when Donald Sutherland was caving in his own duplicate's head with a garden hoe oh, and all that pussy blood is coming out of it and there's that fetal monitor sound like and i was just like oh my god and i scrambled to change the channel but i even then just knowing that what i had seen i couldn't unsee it and knowing that that movie was actually playing even though i wasn't watching it i changed the channel knowing that it was happening in real time understanding that it was being screened somewhere someone was watching it i just I, i couldn't sleep i was terrified and that was a huge huge deal for cementing my like hardcore obsession with horror. The ending of that movie, the ending of that movie is just fucking crazy. Um, the last shot. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's crazy for a couple of reasons. You know, if anyone's not seen it, it's a spoiler. Okay. Whatever. Donald Sutherland is, is a clone and he turns around. He outs Veronica Cartwright and does that unholy. One of the scariest sounds in any cinema is that howl. But uh, what's really scary about that is that when it ends, you know, it zooms into his mouth and it stops and it goes black and the credits roll, but there's no music and no sound at all. So mm-hmm. the last thing you hear as you're exiting the theater or the rock walking away from your television is nothing. It's just that howl like reverberating in your head. And it's, that's like Planet of the Apes too, you know, at the end of the film after mm-hmm. damn you, damn you, it goes black and there's nothing. Just maybe like a little bit of the ocean a little bit for a while, but uh, really, really terrifying. The look on his sure. face, it just yeah. it haunts you. Yeah, he's got that old, that, Donald Sutherland had that great especially then that hound dog kind of hang dog face so when his mouth's open it almost looks cartoon like a cartoon yeah it's it's crazy so big and toothless and yeah uh how does it feel for you now to be a part of the full moon brand pretty cool man because okay so when i was little and i i was before the internet i don't know what vintage you guys are i know how old you are but before the internet, you know, if you were really wanting to know everything you needed to know about films, um, to me, my my Bible was Leonard Maltin's uh, movie and TV guide. And uh, my mom would buy me a new one every year. And uh, not that I would give a shit about reviews even then. But what I understood was that if a movie got four stars, it was going to be great. If it got three stars, it actually wasn't going to be that great. It was going to be kind of mediocre. If it had two stars, we're in better company that means it's probably a fucking masterpiece but malton and his cronies are too afraid to call it that so they kind of give this half-hearted kind of recommendation or there's some yeah. offensive things in there that they like taxi driver got two stars like, huh and don juan demarco gets three it's like what's going on here but uh i always recognize that if malton gave a movie a bomb if it was a horror movie it was going to be great so when I was little, I would circle in the TV guide what movies were like unsavory, according to Malton. And I would stay up all night and make sure that I would watch these, you know. And, uh, and that's how I discovered Charlie Band. You know, it was Parasite, a movie called Parasite, maybe two. Uh, it was shot in 3D, released in 3D, but skip pan and scam 2D when it was appeared on television and video. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, movie fucking rocked me. I just, something about it was so weird. And especially when you're watching it at like two in the morning when you're not quite there anyways, the, those movies just really worked. And then later on, you know, reanimator tourist trap. So I grew up on all that shit and I looked for band's name and then understanding that there was Charlie band, Richard band composed all the music. And sometimes his dad, Albert band would show up. And, and I was like, this is like a dynasty. This is amazing. Uh, so anyways, yeah, Charlie band's been a part of my life since I was really little. And again, I never would have in a million years expected that first I developed kind of a friendship with Charlie and then we started this magazine together, Delirium, because we had dinner together one night and we closed the restaurant. Just me just kind of like talking about all the shit I knew about his family and his dad, his movies. And, you know, and I was running Fango at the time. And, and but I could feel like uh, I could feel the wheels starting to fall off with that. The publisher then everything was kind of not feeling great. It doesn't feel like a safe place to be when you I had kids and it's like I don't know how long this is gonna go. So I, I created Delirium to kind of phase out Fangoria, which I, I did fairly successfully. And then that moved me into full moon and I've been there, you know, ever since as a, a content developer and uh you know I I license films for the channels, all the European stuff, all that shit is is me like seeking all that weird stuff out and and Blu-ray DVD and then yeah, writing and directing a bunch of stuff for for Charlie too. So it's it's 
like a lot of things in my life, it's like all the cool stuff I liked when I was little and some suddenly ended up paying my bills and it's, it's, I'm not still not kind of used to it. It still feels really weird and, and not, not of this earth. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. And, uh, it's funny you talk about Leonard Malden. I feel like for me, I had the same exact thing, but with like Roger Ebert, like, for normal movies, I could kind of see his star system, but yeah, like whenever I'd see his horror reviews and if he gave it two or two or one star, I'm like, okay, I'm probably going to like it. Well, especially when you read Ebert's reviews, sometimes they were, you know, praising a film, but there was just something that would take him out of it. And then he tried to, you know, I became, I was a film critic. I don't call myself a film critic anymore because I kind of realized that critics aren't really of, of great value because especially the weird movies, I mean, critic can trip over their own nuts about something but it won't really have an impact on its endurance or longevity a movie can be a complete turkey and a bomb 20 years later it's hailed a masterpiece so what's the value of a film critic and i found out with me and when i look back on some of those ebert reviews and a lot of times you're using the movie as kind of sport just to you know to so you can prove your mettle as a writer and turn some phrases at the expense of a of a piece of art that has many moving parts and many different artists involved and and also one that maybe be embraced by an audience, and and who cares what's one guy who saw it on you know a press screening a, with a, like a, a banquet set out by the public by the uh, studio and and uh, all this uh, luxury flying around the world to junkets and stuff. Who cares what his opinion is on anything? It's what the people think. You know, it's what the people care about. But that said, I mean, I li- I kind of liked Ebert a lot. You know, and I I missed him, and I especially like as he got older, he seemed to to really reevaluate a lot of stuff he went back and said okay i didn't like this then but i like it now and plus he was a friend of the genre even though he hated all the really ex- you know grindhousey exploitation shit i mean he he did he loved dawn of the dead i mean it was my favorite movie of all time and he was a huge champion of dawn of the dead and he did write a couple of russ meyer movies he wrote them i mean so he was he was a friend of the genre to some degree he just didn't like you know the nastier weirder down market shit which i love yeah, I remember some of his comments saying that like horror films, like especially slashers, were misogynistic, and he he I know he definitely hated slashers, and a lot of it I feel like was also, like you said, pre-internet. I just want to find out about movies. I just want necessarily not his review, but but what he's telling the, me the movies about. I'm like, okay, well now I want to see that, regardless of his review. Yeah, that, absolutely, and yeah, that's why if you're you're a horror fan, you sometimes do look for those outrageously bad reviews because all the things that you're looking for in the entertainment in the film are the things that are repelling the average joe so you're kind of like wow okay so this this sounds like it's you're daring me to watch this fucking movie and i'm in you know because that's what this is this love is all about is kind of like pushing your boundaries right so yeah every time these guys i remember like malton too reviewing a life force you know the toby hooper movie and mm-hmm. ripping it apart and saying like it was just it starts off like a like a space movie and then it becomes like a fucking vampire movie and then it becomes like a a sex movie and then it's like a zombie movie and then it becomes an end of the world saga it doesn't know what it wants to be and i'm like i I know what i want to do i want to be watching this movie now (laughs) (laughs) like this is like literally you've just said like in two hours i can watch every movie i want to watch all in one shot i'm in and i love life force oh my god he was like out to lunch with that thing that movie is perfect jesus and now, like you said, you don't smoke, but with Full Moon, you have movies like Evil Bong and Halloween. Do, does that make you feel like an outsider? 
No, but no, it doesn't because Charlie's a genius. He really is. Um, and what he's not, a, you know, I'm not, I'm not, when I say a genius, I don't mean he's, he's a Rhodes scholar. He's lived a lot of lives and he's a very smart guy and he knows what, what sells and he has a weird sense of humor. He just, he genuinely does. Sometimes to his detriment, I would say that is that sometimes he's got two out there senses of humor. I don't think some people understand that he's in on the joke with a lot of his shit. They just think he makes bad movies and he just, he just thinks they're funny and he wants people to have a good time. So he actually doesn't smoke either at all <laughs> but he loves all that shit and uh he loves you know merchandising that shit and, and having fun with that shit and he makes sure that the writers behind them smoke but he actually doesn't at all but do i feel like an outsider no because you know i don't murder people either but i like you know slasher <laughs> movies <laughs> yeah but i i can appreciate that stuff and and again mainly because i'm part of the mechanism of it and um you know, he said this to me once. I think it was after he directed Evil Bong. Uh, was it Triple Six or maybe the one before that? I don't know. Fuck, they all bleed into one for me. I don't know. But it was one of them, and it was just such a an out there movie. And I'm watching this, going, I don't even really like this shit. But there's an energy <laughs> here. There's weird stuff happening. There's like all this, all these things that exist only in Charlie's world, in Charlie's mind. And uh, he very straight face said, this is like, you know, kind of my Fellini movie. This is my eight and a half. And he wasn't joking. You know, he, he really does have this kind of vibe. If you know eight and a half, like every character shows up at the end. It's almost like a carnival, a circus. And, and in his mind, he's P.T. Barnum. He's kind of bringing all these his friends together and all these weird puppets and weird fucking things. And he's throwing them all into the mix and just whipping them all around and and, uh, you know, that's, that's what he's doing in his mind. So do I, would I like the movies if I wasn't involved with them? Not as much as, as, as I do uh, knowing uh, the, the, the whole mechanisms behind them and, and what goes on in Charlie's mind. So no, I don't feel like an outsider at all. <laughs> you know, they are what they are. They're, they're pretty, they're, and then they last, you know, that's all that matters. People love them. Or don't that's just what I give think about. I mean, yeah. No, I don't feel like an outsider <laughs> at all. Not at all. I get a front row seat. I get a front row seat in Charlie's Circus. It's it's a blast. Every day is a blast. I was going to say, would you ever direct like one of those silly stoner movies if it was offered to you? You know, I I always come up with that. I always think about that. Char- I, I'm in a unique position with Charlie now, where I've kind of said, "Look, just give me a little bit of money, and and uh, every time, and I'll just keep spitting you back a movie." And uh, he knows what I like. And that's Jess Franco and John Roland and all that shit. And, and, you know, I discovered Jess Franco through his wizard video stuff in the early 80s. He was the first guy to kind of import that shit to video. And uh, so he knows I like that weird. You do what I want. Now, if he offered me one of those evil bong movies, well, I wouldn't say no. But the problem is, is he knows he wouldn't because he would know I would take it and turn it into something totally different. Uh, you know, <laughs> radically different. There would be lesbian vampires. Weed and that to me that would be great. You know, it sounds great to me. But yeah, it would be, yeah, I know it would be like you know against the grain of what he would want. But I'm not counting it out. I mean, we have a studio now in in, in uh, Cleveland, and uh, it's you know he bought a big old mansion there. It's called the Full Moon Manor. So um, there's actually we, we shot Baby Oopsie there, and uh, this uh, horny 
movie that Charlie just directed where this girl bangs a ghost. <laughs> and, <laughs> and some other couple other things. And now Billy Butler's over there making the uh the sequels to uh The Resonator, the Miskatonic U movies. And so he's we're going into overdrive. I just directed another one for Charlie, uh, Scream of the Blind Dead. And, and uh, you know, we're just powering through all these movies. So there's and Cleveland's like four hours away from me. So I, I'm you know, we keep it all pretty tight. Everyone kind of close to the belt. We just hired Jim Wynorski to come on board and direct a bunch of shit. And, and, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if I get the call to direct one of these, one of these things and I'll totally do it. It's fun. You know, I have no pretense that, you know, if, if I, at the end of it, I don't like what happens to it. I might stick a pseudonym on it or something, but I'll still do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta say, uh, you mentioned baby oopsie and, uh, I actually, I loved baby oopsie chapter one and two. Did you watch it? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think Billy is a super talented guy. I mean, and he knocked this out of the park. Billy hates, okay, Billy Butler, the actor, you know, and the director and writer. He hates, like, killer doll movies and shit. He like he doesn't like all that shit at all. And uh, <laughs> Charlie's like, look, I want you to direct this movie. And he's like, ah, well, if I do it, I got to do it my way. And that is, I don't want to hire a bunch of, like, you know, 18-year-old porn stars and do all that. I want to hire Libby Higgins and I want to hire big fat people and, you know, really just make it about an outsider and do my own thing. And he did. And I think, I think it's a fucking, it's one of the best movies we've, we've done in a long time. I, I think it's I agree. just, I agree. It's solid fun and it's got a weird sense of humor and uh, it's, everyone's having a good time. I think Libby's great. In it And it feels like, um, he really gets mad when people say this, but it does feel kind of like, john waters took on a full moon movie it has that kind of vibe <laughs> i could totally see that he's like i, I don't get it I, he's like, why do people say john waters because there's fat people in it i'm like no it's not just that it's just got a weird <laughs> kind of bent sensibility you know it's blackly comic and and uh, yeah yeah and also because there's fat people in it i mean yes i mean that's that's true i mean libby looks like she would and justin eric's they look like they could fit comfortably in, in a you know early period waters film so um yeah, no, I thought it was great. It was really great. And he's going to be making a couple more of those, too. Yeah, I know. Uh, actually, we have uh, we have him scheduled for uh, January or February of next year. He wants to uh, talk of wait till uh, the next two chapters of Baby Oopsie are done before he wants to talk to us. So we're going to have him on, too. So we're looking forward to that. He is a treasure. I, I really mean it. He's one of the funniest, most honest, like genuine guys. He's I don't know. I just like Billy's a, I like multi hyphenates and Billy's one of those guys that's been around since Christ was a carpenter. He started in the early eighties with Charlie. <laughs> he's done special effects. He's acted. He's the, you know, the guy's worn so many hats and, uh, and he just, he doesn't have any, he doesn't have an ego. And a lot of guys that they would have this like big ego and he, he doesn't, he's just a, he's a blue collar kind of guy. I really, really, really dig Billy. I really, uh, I liked the, um, the the conjuring remark in baby oopsie i liked when uh baby oopsie's walking around and finds the annabelle doll and she's like uh she's like huh wait there's a new sheriff in town conjure this missy and like punches punches you know the that that cracked me up it's an obvious but great moment and i and i and i i, I loved it because it's not only just you know a fun middle finger flip to, to all that shit but you know, those those Annabelle movies, they take themselves so seriously and they're so boring. They're so formula. And, and this was a, a fun way to remind people that, hey, we're just making a movie about a fucking toy that's running around cutting people up here. You know, we, we can have a little bit of fun with this shit. You know, so serious. I mean, those Conjuring movies are just, to me, like 
well, the first one's okay, but I mean, I just watched the last one recently and it was just, oh my Christ. I watched, <laughs> I watched 20 Evil Bong movies before I'd ever watched that that thing again. Oh my God, that was like watching the paint dry. It was horrible, horrible, <laughs> lifeless, hideous movie. And those, oh, this is another topic entirely. I can't even deifying those Warrens. I mean, they were pretty horrible people in real life. And anyways, whatever, I digress. Yes, Baby Oopsie is a, I think a, a really successful, and I thought Miskatonic U, his Miskatonic U was really good too. And I, I think uh, Billy brings a lot, a lot to the company for sure. Um, well, before we move on, I guess, since we're on the topic of full moon, let's end it on a proper note. I have to ask you, you know, obviously you know, the shit out of horror, you have an enormous horror knowledge. Um, what's your favorite full moon movie? I'm going to tell you mine castle freak. And then uh, John, I want you to tell us yours as well. I mean, it's the easy answer, but Puppet Master. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, when I if I want to look at, you know, we sometimes call every full, I mean, full moon number one is considered to be Mansion of the Doomed, even though it's not a full moon movie. But in right. our catalog, it's number one. So do, when we're talking full moon, are we including Empire Pictures in there and the early stuff like Mansion and Tourist Trap? No, we're talking, you want to talk purely full moon right from 1990 okay yeah i mean those it's hard i mean those first couple of years were when charlie had a lot of money and he was shooting in his castle and i mean those were all all pretty fucking dynamite it's it's a hard one i mean castle freak is perfect any of the Stuart gord stuff is great uh pit the pendulum's great yeah ted stuff's great so subspecies is fun um but i'm actually i'm partial to and i'm not saying it's the best of the lot but i'm partial to meridian because uh I love Sherilyn Fenn. And, and if you love Sherilyn Fenn, and especially if you love her in that period of time uh, and you enjoy seeing her without clothes, making love to like a werewolf. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's in a, in a castle. I mean, that's pretty fucking great. I like all that heaving bosom, <laughs> Gothic romance shit. So uh, Meridian's Meridian's pretty high on the list, but yeah, the Stuart Gordon stuff is kind of its own pedigree. I mean, uh, Stuart's one of the, one of the great directors of all time. So yeah. Castle Freak's great, and that remake of Castle Freak, I unfortunately I didn't think was very good. Or you just you just kind of felt like everything, all the class and elegance uh, Stewart could effortlessly bring to trash movies. Uh, these guys had, had no fucking clue. Agreed. It was it was a big disappointment. Yeah, really sad, sad, and especially with the pedigree. I mean, you know, I see Barbara Crampton produced that. I don't think she really had much to do with it. It was more just sticking her name on it. But you know, you got Fabio Fritzi doing the music and didn't quite register in the mix and weird angles too. I got to say there's one sex scene in that movie and it's like it, the camera was focused right on the guy's taint. And I was like, well, what, what, what? <laughs> it was just like my girlfriend and I were watching it. We just said like, what, who, who let that hit? How did that not get cut? It's just like a dude's taint. I don't know, it, was just really, <laughs> it was a really weird and it went on for so long. It was just an ugly sex scene. It was a really unattractive. <laughs> Anyways, it's thing, things like that, like Stuart, Stuart can make sex look so fun and gross and, and cool, but also like, you know, I mean, reanimator should be like super offensive, but there's just, it's, it's fun, you know? And it's done right. Of, yeah, he just, he gets the vibe. And this, I thought Castle Freak was just kind of smarmy and ugly and kind of dumb. Not his Castle Freak, the new Castle Freak. Right. Which, by um, the way, Charlie had nothing to do with. And he, even though he's listed as executive producer, neither that or Puppet Master remake, he had anything uh, creative to do with at all, except for licensing the, the properties. That's all. 
Well, at least they kept his name on it. I mean, rightfully so. Yeah, he got a bit of a paycheck for it, which is important. But uh, he, you know, those are not those are not pictures that he, he wants to be very very clear that he had had nothing to do with them. I don't blame him. <laughs> um, well, uh, okay. So let's move on to talking about you. Um, uh, you're a very talented composer and you compose music for Necropolis, uh, Legion, uh, blood for arena and uh, queen of blood and female werewolf and a lot more. Uh, what do you enjoy more about movie making, uh, composing or directing? Well, because, you know, when I was in film school, we only had 16 millimeter and it was very expensive. So he'd spend 30 bucks to shoot a two minute roll of film and then 30 bucks to develop that two minute roll of film. And you'd only use about 10 seconds of it. And back in the, that when I was in film school, it just the idea of making independent film was daunting. And when you dropped out, you didn't even have those resources and which I did. And so I wanted to make movies, but I couldn't, but I was a musician and my, my dad taught me guitar and I, I was always creating sound and music. And then I had access to the sound studio at the school. And I just started creating music with tape loops and doing weird experimental things. And I'd seen a movie called The Shout with John Hurt and Alan Bates, where he can kill people by screaming. And John Hurt uh, is an experimental music composer in that movie. It's a really hard movie to find, I think, from 78. It's called The Shout. And it's really fucking good. But there's a whole scene where Hurt is making this experimental music with tape machines and doing all this sound and weird scrapes like like post-industrial kind of shit but actually proto-industrial because it was before industrial music and i thought this is fucking cool so i started making music for movies in my head because it was cheap and then i started performing that stuff as kind of a living film on stages and touring it around and and uh, because that's the closest thing I could get to actually making movies. So the line between film and music has to me been always kind of indivisible. I think it's all, all the liberal arts are kind of connected. Uh, so when I started making movies, um, the way I was rocking it is I would make the soundtracks first. I would create, I would find a location. I would come up with a basic storyline and, uh, and um, are you guys still there? Yeah, yep. We're still here. Okay, yep. just, uh, you know, it was so it was so unearthly quiet there for a minute that uh, I thought, <laughs> oh no, my fucking internet, I've lost it. Um, anyways, um, yeah, so I started making the soundtracks first. So I would create the sounds and everything, and then I would flesh out the, the how I was going to shoot that, how it's going to feel. I wanted to know, like, how's this movie going to feel? And right. so uh, that's it. All most of those early films, that's what I did. That's a hundred percent what I did. So I, I, you know, they're all kind of part of, and that's all my movies I've done. I've never brought in an outside composer except for, um, Necropolis Legion, which Richard band, I mean, fucking did the main music for that. But even that was, uh, I created the temp score first. And then, right. uh, and then when Charlie said, look, you know, Ricky can do the score. I'm like, fuck Richard. Yes. Oh my God. This is insane. <laughs> so I, I just, I just, uh, I just brought the music to Richard and him and I just collaborated and he used a lot of my music to build on and, and create the themes. And then a lot of my music ended up being woven into the film and he just built on it with like strings and stuff. And my guitar stuff is all, it's all mine. So it was a collaboration, but outside of that, I, I don't, uh, it's always my own music and, and it knows you're alone. <clears throat> Pardon me. has a couple licensed film tracks uh, from other composers um, that were put in there because the film is a very deliberate nod to Franco and some key kind of European vibe films. And 
but uh no i mean and mostly yeah it's i do the music first but in the case of it knows you're alone i did that and then i was like well i don't really like the you know the music doesn't feel organic so then i just went back and just kind of created a fresh score for for it when it was cut but no, mostly I do the music first. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I do appreciate your music, and uh, I, I like your uh, directing style as well, and that's why we asked you on. It's um, it's just like John Carpenter. I always like when a director or anybody in, in in movies is good at more than one thing. And like when you're like, hey, I know that dude's music, and it's like you don't have to be the name above the title picture to be recognized in a movie, and you also don't have to be an actor. And I, I appreciate that, you know, and that's why you know like composers and makeup effects people like the, that. It's the type of stuff that gets our blood pumping. We love the industry and we love people that are like talented and multifaceted in the genre. Yeah, so do I. I mean, Carpenter is a huge influence on, on many, so many levels, but uh, I always loved the fact that you could, uh, you could just tell his movies a mile away just from how they sounded as, as well as the, the motifs and, and how they looked, especially all those Dean Conde shot ones. There was a real identity to them, but no, the music's great, but also I'm a huge European uh, horror movie fan. So Dario Argento, and then knowing that you know that that sound, like the Goblin stuff, or the Morricone stuff in the early ones, and you know the Simonetti. I mean, there's just there was a sound of that stuff, right? Where you could just absolutely it, it was it drove the images. You know, these this these were rock videos before they were rock videos in many respects, and and uh, I just I loved the fact that that the you know back in this, but the Europeans, so it was always that the uh, the director was so if they, even if they didn't compose the music themselves they were so deeply involved in the scoring you know like speaking of morricone you know like sergio leone would work with morricone from the script stage up you know so that he, the music he was creating was was like simpatico with what leone was directing and so they just worked well together you know it wasn't just like a some joe hack came in at the end of the film and just threw a bunch of crap on it and walked away right right you know, the music was, was a part of the, as a character in the film as, completely. You know, Hitchcock did that too with Bernard Herrmann. Anytime you see that, I'm not putting myself anywhere near in the league of any of those guys, but the sensibility is the same, except the fact that I can do it myself. And, and also I'm a bit of a control freak so that I, I can, I can handle it all myself on my end and make sure that, you know, whether you, the film works or doesn't work, whether people like it or don't, it's a hundred percent mine across the board, you know, and, and there's a great feeling of, of accomplishment just personally for that, you know, like I, I've created a nice little piece of art, you know, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, these are all, this is just, yeah, music and movies together when they, when they're married, right. Is, uh, it's just something I'm really interested in too. Yeah, like you said, instead of people, you know, coming in after the point and throwing on music, it's always great when someone, even not if it's the person making the movie, but someone who just like knows the material well is making the music to be part of the movie's DNA instead of making music to try to get reactions. Yeah, yeah. And there's also, you know, a bad score too. I'll use uh, in the con in the context of horror. I mean, there's it's a lot of movies I like and then the score is just, just destroyed the like creep show two, for instance, which is not a great movie, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not bad. I mean, it's pretty good, but that score is just, is vile. It's vulgar. It's, just, <laughs> it's the laziest, most wankiest, useless music. And it just, it really deep sixes a lot of the, anything that, that Michael Gornick was trying to build with that movie. It really kind of bugs my ass, but by the same token, you get stuff like, um, 
like Hellraiser 2 or something, you know, where the Christopher Young score just brings that movie, which isn't yeah. particularly a successful film on some levels visually. Yes. But, but that just, that music just, just brings it all to life. And, and I say Giallo films, like even John Carpenter, I mean, I, what's Halloween really, if you really watch Halloween and take the sound off, it's just a bunch of people walking around most of the time and not unless happening, but it's that music where every second of it feels like it's alive and dangerous. And that's know, all right? that that's all John Carpenter's music. That's all him doing that. Yeah, I agree. Uh he hasn't uh, in my opinion John Carpenter hasn't scored anything that's bad. I like all of his music. You know, that's he's he's a, he's a master. <laughs> Me too. I mean, I just I put uh you know, I lo- always loved Ghost of Mars, nobody does. So I the last issue of Delirium, I'm like, fuck it. So I called John up. I said, this is what we're doing. It's, I didn't even realize it's the 20th anniversary, but I'm like, let's, let's do it. So we, I put Ghost of Mars on the cover. And everyone's talking about Halloween Kills. I'm like, no, no, no. We're going to do Ghost of Mars. And so we blew that out there. And you know, part of the reason I love ghosts so much is, well, A, it's just out of control. But B, uh, that soundtrack is just bananas. I mean, it's Carpenter just decided to become a heavy metal guy and just bring in on anthrax and buckethead and all these guys. And just it doesn't even make sense that soundtrack, but it's so good. I agree. I'm not a fan of the movie. I'll be honest, but I do like the soundtrack. So we'll agree on that. <laughs> I, I don't know when the last time you saw it. Ghost of Mars is something that I think you just got to keep sticking your finger in the socket until you, you like the feeling of being shocked because <laughs> it's, it's just, it, I love them. It's the one I keep going back to over and over. And I'll admittedly, while I'm watching it, sometimes I'm like, this isn't really working. And then it's over. I'm like, I love that movie. Like, it's a really strange relationship I have with Ghost of Mars, but yeah, I'm like kind of addicted to it. It's weird. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, Let's get to the reason why you're here finally. Let's talk about It Knows You're Alone. All right. So John and I, you know, are fans of it. We we watched it. I watched it twice. Uh it's 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 such a unique short film. Um it's definitely nothing like what I expected or what I would have expected, especially from Full Moon. And that's something again that you had brought up earlier about how you do things differently. It wasn't just like dumb people like dumb characters, like like witty and on purpose, I mean like witty bimbos and you know, like like, like stoner jokes it was a very more serious uh in tone. And uh you said that the idea came from this Russian submarine phone that you bought. So like how long ago was that? Like is this idea for this movie was this something new? And the phone was new, or is this something that you've had like on on your mind, or something you've owned for a while and wanted to tell the story for a while? Well, all my movies kind of have the same vibe. It's like uh, they all they're always almost female based, uh, and that's not. I'm not trying to make any kind of political statement. I just I find uh, it's kind of a heady kind of thing going on there where i find uh you know just women a i love like you know the palma you know love shooting women i mean just i really do but also i there's a movie called the duke of burgundy by P- peter strickland's duke of burgundy and it takes place in a movie world with- oh, sorry are you there yeah i'm here i'm here oh sorry sorry i didn't know if i lost you uh no there's a movie called the duke of burgundy and uh, there's no men in it all it's, it's just women so i like the idea of it's not you know some people like some people are like it knows you're alone yeah it's a queer positive movie and like it's not i mean there there's just no men in it you know right right and how many guys come up to me and they say i want to be in one of your movies i'm like well it's not you know the only problem is you have a penis this is the issue because i just <laughs> I, I only put women in it so um yeah so i i, I don't know that's kind of digressing about the germ of the idea but I, basically this we own our own channels full moon has full moon features we have full moon amazon channel and 
And so because of that, we're in a unique position where, A, Charlie owns his entire library, so he can repurpose it. But half the movies at Full Moon Features aren't even Full Moon movies. We're licensing movies. And uh, a lot of them have never been released before, some older films. Uh, weird European shit. We're digging through the vaults in, in Italy and Germany and finding cool stuff that people haven't seen for a while or, or ever in some cases. But uh, bottom line is spending a lot of money on licensing these things. And I came to Charlie. I said, look, we have this magazine. I'm running this magazine. Why don't we create Delirium Films, a new imprint? Um, and just, it'll just be kind of like a wide open canvas where we can start doing things that you know are low risk. And uh, instead of licensing movies that exist, we'll create our own movies that we own. And uh, we can take a few more risks and kind of bring on the uh, different directors to experiment more and create kind of like little auteur movies. And he's like, let's do it. Fucking go. You know, the way he's with Charlie, if he likes the idea, he's greenlit immediately. Isn't him and Ha and like, you know, he probably should, he, you know, but he doesn't. <laughs> he just jumps in. And so we, he said, just give me a few ideas. And I blasted out a couple ideas to him. He said, all right, that's a, uh, he just literally pinned the tail to the donkey and said, okay, it knows you're alone. Let's do that. Originally it was called Cries in the Night, but that was a pretty generic name. Uh, it was actually, that's the alternative name to a Canadian movie called Funeral Home. And I was like cries in the night as the name. It's pretty, pretty basic, but it became, it knows you're alone very quickly after that. It's a little more ominous, but you know, the idea was, uh, you know, originally I had the kind of the outline because I had bought this Russian submarine phone. It literally is a, a sound phone that was ripped from the, the, the base of, uh, you know, the bowels of a, of an old Russian world war II submarine. And it's this big evil looking metal contraption i mean it's just perverse there's nothing like it that exists in the contemporary world and, and it's heavy as fuck and and it's interesting i just thought well this would be just a neat and then there's this shipwreck around me too this guy had from quebec had sailed this ship into like this little harbor out in the uh, near the border of buffalo and niagara falls and it was like basically crashed into the reef and he was going to open it as a restaurant that he died and someone lit it on fire and it's been sitting there like a ghost oh wow yeah, so I was like, okay, so I got this phone, I got this boat, and I got a couple ladies here, and and I got this house, you know, and I'm I'm friends with these people that on this this set that was used for like Anne of Green Gables and shit, and so I kind of came up with this cool isolated little movie about this woman who's basically either insane or legitimately, you know, uh, kind of. Uh, channeling some sort of weird erotic energy from this phone this this thing that she lets into her life and it, you know subconsciously too not to get too like pinkies up with it all but I, I made this you know during lockdowns and shit like i made three movies during covid lockdowns in, in toronto Damn. and and each and each one's more isolated than the last and for various reasons a because i couldn't really bring a lot of people on and <laughs> and and b because it was kind of just what was on your mind and so in many ways, it knows you're alone, whether consciously or subconsciously is also kind of answering to the kind of weird, isolated vibe of, of, uh, the way I was living and people were living at the, at the time, like, I guess, I don't know. So there were all these things kind of swirling around, but the money was there, gave it to me and we just jumped right in and, and made this crazy movie. And, and, uh, literally there was like three or four of us making it and, um, yeah, shot in three days. Crazy. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I got a question. Uh, I, I got to say that although the, the creature on the poster isn't in the movie, I think the po the poster is cool as shit. It's sexy and creepy. Um, well, what's up with the creature on the poster? Was that something that was done before the film was made? No, <laughs> no, it's not. That's just, you know, the typical 
exploitation movie producers uh role is to make the poster look fucking bad shit and then you're watching you're like well it's not quite bad it's not quite the poster <laughs> but then the poster becomes part of the film's identity and it just makes it part of the coolness of the whole prop product you know i mean yeah. back in the old back in the old american international pictures days and, and in the empire pictures days too with charlie I mean, and a lot of different exploitation filmmakers they would create the poster first and a title and then bring people on and say okay now make this a movie and you know of course you could never live up to the insanity of the poster yeah the creature you never see the creature's face i mean that's the whole point is that you know she because she is the creature so she becomes that kind of like blankly absorbs her until she's you don't know where you are in the, in the that doesn't make any sense it really is just genuinely a night gallery episode um jacked up with a lot of jess franco jizz and, <laughs> uh, really and it doesn't have to make sense i'm a firm believer in that horror movies don't have to make any kind of linear le- legitimate sense in fact i like them better when they don't because you keep wanting to revisit Agreed. trying to f- figure it out when there's too much exposition and everything's spelled out for you there's really no need to dive back in uh but you become the one the movies that i become obsessed with uh, again i like all movies right but the ones i become really obsessed with so uh, obsessed with are the ones that don't play their hand and i got to keep going back and figuring out uh what's going on in them you know so um yeah yeah the yeah, creature the, the creature if i could you know I, I don't even think if i could even if i did have the budget to realize some sort of ghoulish bleh, Actually, you know what it was? I'll tell you what it was, why that creature looks like that. Because originally I'd given, when I came up with these concepts for Delirium Films movies, I gave them all to to, um, a poster artist. And one of them, and I did it, I just finished it. I'm in post on it now, Screams of the Blind Dead, which is literally uh, my version. It's like a cross between a Knows You're Alone and and a a Mondo D'Asorio's Tombs of the Blind Dead. Um the the blind dead guy was on the front like and i gave him an example i said i now create me a piece of concept art with this but he kind of crossed his wires and he had the description of it knows you're alone he kind of put the the templar skeletal face on that thing and so charlie loved that concept art so much that when we came down to do the final poster art he he got ryan brookhart at the studio to kind of like riff on take take the elements from the actual movie and we took a, I took a photo of the girls together and then he put the skull face kind of massaged it back in there. So yeah, it kind of happened by accident, but now I actually did make a blind dead movie and it's, it's yeah. So it's all kind of worked out. No, like I said, I, I love the poster. Um, I like, I think the poster is just awesome looking. And that's when I was on, when I was on, you know, my, the full moon features app that the poster is what stands out about it. And, you know, like, it, I, although I love the poster, I'm going to make an honest statement here. Trust us. We're not upset that the creature's not in the movie. It's okay that you gave B. Dolly two roles. We'll take that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is B. Dolly. It's also Ali Chaplin, the creature's outfit too, right? I mean, that's 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 her. Uh, and then she's got the blank face, but then at the end, it's, yeah, B's got a double shot of, of the role. And yeah. Yeah, the creature has no face. I mean, when she's going down on B in that one scene, she pulls the, the hood up and it's just like this, you know, gelatinous skin that's there. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, but which I think is cooler. You don't necessarily want this big skull face. I mean, actually, you do. What am I talking about? If this was like an old Amicus movie and the skull face, I'd be like big boner watching that. So that's maybe that's for another. That's for another movie. That's for another movie. <laughs> 
Well, um, uh, you were uh, you were very much a one man crew. Uh, like you said, you did this during COVID. It was like four people during on on the whole like production. Um, you even did the cinematography. So, let me ask you, what challenges did you have? Pretty much being a one man show. I'm always kind of a one man show. That's that's the thing is that I've shot most of the first couple of movies. I had another guy around with me, but then very quickly I kind of took it over. I got very impatient with trying to tell somebody how to, to shoot something. And I'd just jump in and shoot. And sometimes that even meant picking up my iPhone and taking the shot I wanted to take. And then realizing that, you know, with the right filter, the iPhone footage matched perfectly with the other footage. And it was like, fuck it, fine. And to the point where I made female werewolf and I just had five iPhones and I shot the entire thing on five different iPhones because I had complete control of all of them. Yeah. The entire movie, not one, you know, that was before like Steven Soderbergh's movie where they made a big deal. They shot it with an iPhone. It's like, ah, okay, well, whatever. Yeah. I'm not Steven Soderbergh. So I get it. But you know, it, it's it's fine. I like being I like being in total control because I know exactly what I want. I know how it has to, I know how it has to sound, how it has to look. And when you're in the low budget world and you have no time, you don't have the luxury of trying to work with a lot of people. You know, because you can't. But also because it's a it's another step that sometimes if you can skip it, it works in your favor because you can get the job done much faster. Uh, so in Necropolis Legion, we had cinematographers and to be totally honest, they, as, although that's the biggest budgeted thing I've done and or maybe the most accessible, uh, a lot of those shots and it's no fault of the cinematographers. It's just a match, a matter of maybe it's my fault. It's the fact that it didn't communicate enough or we didn't have enough time to properly communicate or stage the stuff I wanted to shoot and get the right angles and but in the case of it knows you're alone, yeah, the difficulties are huge because I'm running around with literally like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. I've got lighting things sticking out of my pants. No, no joke. And I've got cameras down by my feet and this, that, and I'm just doing setup upon setup upon setup. It's just going crazy. Like, you know, there's packed days just running around, but I'm getting everything I want. You know, right. there's no, there's no wasted shots. There's no, no nothing. I mean, I'm basically getting every single thing and I plan it out so meticulously that, that's, uh, I'm just diving in and, and getting exactly what needs to be got. And, um, yeah, I just, it's, a, it's, it's an, it's a necessity being the mother of invention in the world of low budgets. And, and I'm glad I, I can do that. Yeah, I guess that's the trade-off. You get to be in complete control, but you also have to deal with all the struggles. But then again, it's your it's your work at the end of the day and not someone else's. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot of struggles. And every time I do it, like I remember coming home after driving home at like 11 o'clock at night after day two of that thing. I'm like, fuck it. I'm never going to make another one of these fucking uh, turn and burn movies. I'm never doing it again. Fuck it. I'm <laughs> never doing This is just like, forget it. I'm like, what am I doing? And then you make the movie and you're like, wow, this little, pic- this little picture has actually got some legs. I, I really like it. It's got a great vibe. And a couple of people are like, hey, I really like this movie. And you're like, oh, okay. All right. Suddenly, next thing you know, it's like three weeks later and you're doing another one. You're like, okay. And uh, and I did, am. And so I'm finishing post for Screams of the Blind Dead. And then I'm jumping into another goddamn one. A weird riff on the 1974 British-Spanish movie Vampires called Flesh for Christina in, in a few weeks. So... And it's another one of these uh, nickel and dimer small little movies where I'm going to be doing everything. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, well, uh, will there be a physical copy at some point of It Knows You're Alone? 
because I'm a big I'm a big physical media collector. Like I have over like two thousand Blu-rays and DVDs, and that's not including my VHS collection. So whenever I like a movie, I want to own it. I just I don't I don't I like digital. I trust digital, but you know uh, my subscription can't get canceled to my Blu-ray collection, and it's like I, I like to own it. And I so that's always a question I have is um <clears throat> like when can I own it? <laughs> I, I don't trust digital, and I, I I subscribe to every known channel, and it's great as a convenience to have it. But it's it's a movie I love. I always almost consider the digital as testing ground for if I really want to invest in the picture, and and I, I'm a collector too. Although I don't collect Blu-rays as much anymore, I collect uh, film prints now, and that's kind of. It's, trust me, it's it's way more expensive, and it's it's like, oh my god, what am I doing? And it takes up all the space in my house. But but uh, anyways, I digress. Yes, you we will be having a, a, a release of this at some point. I just don't know when. Um, we've got a bunch of movies coming out. Um, catalog titles new titles and i think i think the pattern with us with full moon is usually we uh we released a full moon features there's a window for about a week and then we put it on amazon and then we let it run on amazon for a bit and then we block it out to tubi and some of the other channels and then, and then we let that run for a couple of weeks on tubi or whatever and then we um we pop out the the release after that so i'd say probably uh, comfortably we're looking at like maybe january something like that to see the blu-ray of this so it's definitely coming excellent and uh in your own words uh why do you think people should watch it knows you're alone um you know what i watched it again. you know you make these things and, and you don't even want to ever see them again um and a lot of my stuff's very, I like slow shots, you know, <laughs> but this is what happens when you love European stuff. One of your favorite movies is Death in Venice, which is like the most inaccessible. I like boring movies. I can't, you know, <laughs> I purposely, but purposely, I like, I, I, I say boring with my tongue in cheek. I'd like immersive movies that take their time and are patient, you know? And uh, so a lot of my movies are like that and they can be very divisive, especially with horror fans just looking for a quick fix. But what I like about it knows you're alone is I think it's slow burning enough and that it does immerse itself, take its time. I think it's very economically populated and produced. And I think it's with its short running time, I think it's paced very well. And I think it's just an enjoyable little low budget uh, horror shock psychodrama. Um, plus I, I think, um, I think B's really good in it. I think Ali's really good in it. I think it has a good kind of vibe. I think the music's good. Mine and the uh, Daniel White music from Jess Franco's uh, library and the Piero Piccioni music. I think it sounds good, looks good, feels good. I think it's fucking weird. Just weird enough that it gives you a little bit of a buzz. And I think it's paced really well. So it kind of goes down easy. It's um, it's a nice little nugget. And if you're a fan of um, the European stuff, which is a little bit more weirder and gauzier and dreamier, then I think you're going to respond uh, pretty pretty okay to this little movie. So it's it's um, yeah, it's a nice, respectable little piece of shit. Well said, and I I have to say we had Jennifer Reeder on, and we've talked about short short films, and I just feel like they're not utilized. I mean, I I agree with her that they're not utilized enough here. Sometimes you don't need a movie; it runs an hour and a half. It's it's fine being an hour or a little less. You don't have to stretch it out. Well, I I agree with that. I, to me, it's like I look at some of my favorite films from like the early '30s. Uh, you know, a lot of times those movies barely scraped an hour. And and to me, they did exactly what they did. It was their mission statement, just to come in there. Especially the the second run, like the B stuff. I mean, they don't have to be long to say what they're going to say, and uh, then get the fuck out. 
And uh, I, I kind of, I really appreciate that, especially with a film like this. This is a very intimate, small story. It's not plot driven. It's more like emotion and mood and texture. So too much, too much of that takes you out of it. This is, I think this one has just, just got enough, uh, you know, and technically a feature is considered in the festival world and, and whatnot, 45 minutes. So as long as you've hit 45 minutes, you're kind of straddling the line. You're not quite a short and you're not quite a feature, but technically, I guess you are a feature. So it runs good. And especially, you know, people looking for a quick fix while they're streaming, they're trying to watch something fun and easy to go down. Why, 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 you know, do too, too, give them too much. Uh, just give them enough, give them a little taste so that maybe they want a little more. And um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we're doing with these little delirium films movies we're making is, uh, just quick blasts of weird shit that uh, people are going to watch and absorb and, and enjoy. And then hopefully uh, come back for more. It's like season. It's like a episode of could fit in season four of the twilight zone. That's a hundred percent is exactly what that model was And bang on. Thank God. Cause that's is exactly what I was thinking, putting these together is, uh, but the problem with those, a lot of those season fours is that, they couldn't find their footing enough. They, instead of sticking with expanding the three acts of the half an hour shows, they were aiming for something a little deeper, but they took, they were too ambitious with it. So a lot of those movies couldn't quite, those twilight zone episodes in season four couldn't quite find what they wanted to be. Cause they, 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 they just, they were that running time did work, but the ones that did work worked really fucking well, like miniature and stuff like that, that I thought was these were these perfectly realized little, little episodes um so yeah that, that was my model for sure was to kind of build on on the vibe of what serling did with um with season four when it worked you know it definitely pays off and uh well what uh projects do you come up or i'm sorry have coming up yeah so i got the uh again the scream of the blind dead which I, i'm really digging i'm still in the, in the edit but i i i, I like this movie i think it's got a, a good vibe to it. it's really good atmosphere and a cool creature, cool costume too. So if you, if you like the blind dead stuff and all my movies are kind of remakes of tombs of the blind dead in a weird way, even though all the female vampire, they move kind of in the same weird way. Um, but this is like literally a, a, a Templar knight kind of creature. So, and it looks cool. So I'm just finishing that and then starting another one for a company called dark side releasing, not full moon, same company that produced my movie girl, the straight razor, which is also coming out to Blu-ray and DVD in November this month. And, um, so there's a lot of things going on and I'm working on a Roger Corman book, which I've been should have had finished two months ago, but then I got busy with all these dumb movies and uh, hopefully it'll be done in a few weeks. And it's coming out from a, a British publisher next year. And it, what it is, is basically 10 years of me interviewing Roger about his Poe films. And, uh, and so it's like this, this like the ultimate Roger Corman. If you're a fan of those movies, this is the ultimate dissection of them with Corman himself. So that is yeah. So it's pretty cool. And my goal is, you know, Roger's 95 and he's still doing great. And I just, I got to finish this thing while he's still on the, on the good side of the earth. Cause I want him to see it. So uh, hopefully I'll have that done as soon as possible. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to checking that out. Thanks. Yeah, me too. And uh, where, where can people keep up with you online uh, with your various projects? Well, just my, um, no, there's so many things. So the film and the music will be at uh, chrisalexanderonline.com. So you can 
figure out what's going on with me in that respect. And then it links to my store. If you want to catch up on some of the uh, older titles, I have stock of most of my stuff on there. Some of it's not around anymore, but there's enough of it's there that you can get a taste and records and all that shit, movies, Blu-rays. And uh, I have a film blog that I write about just movies I love. That's alexanderonfilm.com. And then uh, deliriummagazine.com is the home portal for for my mag that Charlie and I run, Delirium, which we're starting our 29th issue now. And um, and then fullmoondirect.com, fullmoonfeatures.com, which is all the, uh, the world of full moon that I somehow found myself really deeply ingrained in. And I don't know how that happened, but here I am. So yeah, a lot of, lot of stuff, a lot of places to go and a lot of cool entertainment out there. Yep. And uh, thanks again for joining us today. It was a real pleasure getting to talk to you. Thank you guys. And, and and thank you also for, for letting me detour into the twilight zone. Anytime I get a chance to, to do that, that's pretty exciting. So oh, same here, same here. Yeah. So thanks for, thanks for that. And thanks for liking my little movie. Um, I know, you know, B Dolly, I told her that this, you know, she's, she's really, she has never really starred in a movie before. Like, and she's just uh, basking in some of the attention she's getting from this and well-deserved. So, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time to be on. It was a true pleasure talking to you, man. Cheers, man. Take care. Bye-bye. I really enjoyed getting to talk to Chris Alexander. What a class act. Yeah. Uh, now we can get into our other interview with B. Dolly. B. Dolly is a model and actress. She's had roles in Polar, Paper Year, the TV show Killjoys, and of course, she's the leading lady in It Knows You're Alone. Welcome, B. Thank you for being on High on Horror. Thank you. And uh, just for the record, my pronouns are actually they and them, if that's cool. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you for being on High on Horror. Uh, it's, it's great to have you. Uh, we're big fans of uh, It Knows You're Alone. And uh, so let's start with uh, the obvious question. Um, do you smoke? Uh, I do not know. I, I used to in my early twenties and then around 25, it just like paranoia hit every single time I did it. So <laughs> I had to okay. stop. I had to stop. I, I missed it. Cause I was, a I was a wake and baker, but, um, brain chemistry changes. Understood. So you're not completely against it though. It's just like, not for you now. Oh no, I'm not against it at all. It's just, I can't do it. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> um, well, uh, okay. So, um, are you still a suicide girl? I technically, technically I am still a suicide girl. They never archived me, which is where they, um, make your profile inactive. I haven't shot mm -hmm. a set for them since 2006. Okay. Back when most of the suicide girls that are on the site now were too young to be suicide girls. Um, <laughs> but technically, I'm my profile is active. Okay. And uh, you were also, uh, after that, involved in Naked News as well. How did you end up getting involved with that? Um, I auditioned. <laughs> they put out auditions in... Uh, in the back of this free paper in Toronto called uh, now magazine and in amongst the ads for uh, sensual massage 
and uh, naked house cleaning. There was an ad looking for someone to come in and read the news naked. And I thought, well, this seems up my alley. I love politics and hate clothing. And uh, with uh, your other movies, have you always been a fan of the horror genre? Yes, absolutely. Um, Ever since I was younger, you can't see it right now because this is my normie room. Uh, But downstairs, I have a whole room dedicated to horror and Buffy the Vampire Slayer with tons of weapons and all sorts of other things. I've been into horror since I had my first Fangoria magazine subscription and um, obsessive Goosebumps collection at the age of eight. So... Oh, Goosebumps is amazing. And uh, you just mentioned Buffy, so I'm going to ask you, because I love Buffy, uh, Spike or Angel? Oh, okay. (laughs) I have so many feelings about this. (laughs) So my favorite of her boyfriends was Riley, and I get so much shit for it, but I love Riley. Riley was a great boyfriend, and she was a terrible girlfriend to him. Um, Fair enough. (laughs) No, he was amazing. Everybody calls him a meathead. But, you know, he was a member of special ops demon hunting uh, crew. He was a TA in a psychology class. He was down to earth. He was sweet. He was kind. He didn't try to murder her, you know, so that's one up on everybody else. Uh, (laughs) But if it's between Spike or Angel, I would choose Spike uh, just because Spike, when he was evil, was just kind of a brute. Angel, when he was evil, was big E evil. Um, mm-hmm. Spike was just kind of more a chaotic wrecking ball, and Spike worked to get his soul back, whereas Angelus uh, worked to not have his. Like, right, right, was, yeah. Uh, even in demon <clears throat> form, there was humanity in Spike. There was not in Angelus. That's yeah. That's a fair enough answer. Uh, I I do I like Spike more than Angel because he's just more of a dick. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, you're right. You know, William the Bloody is is a badass, but Angelus was the big bad. Like so, that's that's a fair good. That's a very good answer. Um. Okay. So, uh, what made you make the transition from being a model to an actress? Uh, I was always an actor. Uh, growing up, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in film. Um, and modeling was actually just kind of a conduit towards getting into it. I mean, I was, I was the dorky drama kid in school. Um, and I liked making TV and making movies and that was modeling was kind of my, my foot in the door because I couldn't sing. So musical theater was out. Okay. Well, um, how did you come to be involved with It Knows You're Alone? And what drew you to the project? Uh, so I met Chris through uh, the actor on It Knows You're Alone, Ali Chapel, who is a friend of mine uh, and a wonderful, wonderful human. And uh, she mentioned the project to me and uh, hooked me up with Chris's number and we we chatted and we realized that we had a lot of the same uh, horror movie interests in common. And he told me about it and um, it sounded like so much fun. Anytime I get to play crazy, I am 100% in. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean, it's not really acting, but 
<laughs> um, but it, it sounded like a fun project and I, uh, watched Chris's other films that he had done, um, Queen of Blood and, uh, um, I am blind. Yeah, She-Wolf or, uh, I can't remember off the top of my Titty head mouth. either. I'm thinking it's the, uh. <laughs> Titty mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, both titties. <laughs> Oh my goodness! What? Necropolis, Necropolis Legion. Um, and That's it. Yep. Right. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was really inventive. I loved how stylistic Chris's movies were, because um, he doesn't. I feel like he paints a picture as much as he tells a story, and I really like that. I think it's something that a lot of people do nowadays. Uh, and I liked his vision and it sounded like a lot of fun. And frankly, we were under lockdown and COVID and I had nothing else to do. <laughs> well, but it's funny. I was very excited. It's funny you said that. Um, yeah, I'm, um, it's, I'm sorry. I had a little bit of a delay, so I cut you off there. Um, I, I was just going to say it's funny that uh, that you had uh, mentioned that his project was like painting a picture because I was going to mention that although um, it knows you're alone is like creepy uh it, it it definitely is artsy it has that artsy feel to it it's not just like a gritty horror movie it's got almost an artsy feel to it so when you said painting a picture like i kind of understood that right away because when i watched the film i've watched it twice i thought like it's kind of artsy for like a supernatural short film Hmm. and that's i mean it it definitely feels like you know a moving picture like right it feels like an oil painting come to life. Like it's a, it's a moment in time. It's a scene. And I love that because I don't feel like there's a lot of that out there right now. So I, I jumped at the chance because I thought that would be fun. And it was, we had a blast. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, yeah, Chris, Chris had said that you guys had a lot of fun as well. And, um, uh, the house that you guys, uh, filmed in, it's beautiful. And I have to ask, you know, um, I know you guys only filmed for three days. Uh, did you guys stay at the house during filming? Oh, I wish we could have. Uh, I wish we could have. I, um, again, I'm in my normie room, but if we were downstairs, you'd see all my old furniture. Um, I have a coffin that my parents made me, uh, that's fully lined and everything for, uh, that they made me for Christmas last year. Um, and I, a lot of old dusty things and I love things with character. Uh, when I'm not doing all of the other things I'm doing, I'm a tour guide for a haunted walk here in Toronto. Um, and I love the idea of history and possibly there being a ghost. And if any house was haunted, that one absolutely was. Um, but no, we couldn't, we couldn't sleep there. We did, uh, sleep in a very nice hotel. And, uh, the last night our hotel was by the Jordan Harbor where we shot the, uh, scenes of the ship and Allie coming out of the water. And I'm a massive Jennifer's body fan. And so is Allie. So I brought my Jennifer's body costume and I got a little needy dress and we went into that disgusting water in the middle of the night and shot a Jennifer's body scene. Um, so we still made the most of our nights. Um, like we shot some photos. Uh, we still made the most of our night. 
but I would have loved to have slept in that house. The bed was so uncomfortable. And I was worried that if I moved it on it the wrong way, I was going to break it because it was not, I'm six feet tall and it was made for people about half my size. So when you see me on and I'm kind of like bending and that wasn't, so I looked good. That was so that I fit. (laughs) Um, So it wouldn't have been the greatest sleep in the world, but oh man, I would have loved to have stayed there. Well, um, you had mentioned, uh, you know, that if there was a ghost and that there was possibly a ghost in that house. So, and that you do a, a ghost, a ghost tour, you said, um, so are you, a, yeah. do you, you do believe in the supernatural? Absolutely. Me too. Me too. I have some crazy stories I could get into, but I'm not going to, but let me just say, I used to be a skeptic, but I'm not anymore. <laughs> I think this is the way I explain it to a, a lot of people. Um, I think that there it's less of a matter of, do you believe or not, or have you had experiences or not? And I think some people are a little bit more sensitive to it. Like, um, some people get migraines when it rains, um, cause they're more sensitive to the pressure. And the idea, uh, the prevailing idea is that ghosts, spirits, whatever, they're leftover bits of energy. Right. And I think some people are just more sensitive to it than others. And some people have learned to shut it off, turn it, completely off of their minds. Um, like for example, I grew up in a very, very old home and both my father and I had very similar experiences in that house to the point where when I was young, I used to grab a sleeping bag and go sleep in the floor in my brother's room because my room was terrible. That's where a lot of the activity centered around. Um, my brother now haunts that house because he is 31 years old and has never moved out. Uh, <laughs> but he sleeps in my old room and uh, he is a psychological dead zone. He has never felt anything. He thinks we're both insane. Um, but my dad and I, my father and I have had similar experiences in that house. I've had experiences giving tours, being in different places. You just, you feel things, you know. Yeah, I agree. I think like you said, maybe, uh, it's, it's people, some people are more sensitive to it than others, you know, but I have been on the other side of it though. Like, you know, I tell people, you know, like my sister and I were in my, I've told this uh, story on a previous episode. My uh, sister and I were in my bedroom back when I lived at my parents' house. I was still, I was, it was like middle school and, uh, you know, we were playing the first PlayStation and, uh, like across the room, across the room, I had this old ass radio that my dad had gotten me from somewhere. I don't know where he got it from, but uh, we had had problems in the house before, but this radio switched on by itself and it was all the way across the room. And like, I literally have a butter knife laying on my nightstand next to it because I have to push it with the butter knife because the button's always stuck and jammed. And this thing just switches on by itself across the room. And when I tell people that story, everybody's like, you know, like I, I see the looks and I'm like, I get it now. I get how people really don't understand or believe you. And it's like, they make you feel crazy or that you look crazy. And you're like, that shit happened. I can't like, I'm not going to lie and say it didn't happen. So you believe me. So if you want to think I'm crazy, think I'm crazy. You know? I think a lot of people too, don't want to believe we have a weird relationship with death and the afterlife right now. We are so far removed from death and we've sanitized it uh, in a way that historically we never have. So I think people just don't like the idea of it because they're confronted with their own mortality. And if you look at 
Victorian days, all Victorians believed in ghosts. Yeah. And they were deeply connected to their dead. They made wreaths out of their hair. They took um, photos with them after they had passed. They did not have funeral homes. They just had them up in their house with herbs and salt and, and ice around them to try and stem the smell and had their family come and visit them there. Um, and I think the further we remove ourselves uh, from death as a concept and the further we sanitize death and make it something um, mechanical, something to be feared, uh, something we put off, um, the the less people believe. And I think those two things are linked. Yeah, that makes because sense. Because I think and it <clears throat> comes down to fear of mortality. Yeah, and they used to also put the uh, hair of um, the, the the deceased on uh, dolls. You had mentioned how they uh, had... Um, yeah you know uh, taking hair they would also make like uh, old porcelain dolls with the hair of a deceased person so you're right they 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 did acknowledge death i think a lot of it is a lot of people are defensive too when when something scares them they get defensive and i think that that's mm-hmm. i think that's what it is but anyway back to it knows you're alone um how many hours a day did you guys film because it was only done in three days so was it like a grueling shoot or was it like short hours um we went we went pretty long. We started in, in the morning and we would end at night. Uh, the first night we almost did have to stay there. Uh, we had to be out because this is a, a gated off, uh, little mini farm community that's also used, uh, for a lot of shoots. And the rules were we had to be out of there at nine and we were just leaving at nine and the gates were closed and Allie and I couldn't figure out how to open them. And we're like, well, I guess we're staying at the haunted house with the, uh, creepy doll there. Great. And then, uh, Agnes and Mortimer, which is what I named those pictures of the disapproving people. Agnes and Mortimer. <laughs> Agnes and Mortimer. They did let us out and I'm not going to lie. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I was really hoping that Agnes Mortimer and I could have had a slip, slumber party, but uh, unfortunately, we wasn't, got out. Wasn't in the cards. <laughs> wasn't in the cards. Um, well, Which is uh, too bad, because Agnes, she looked like she could be a party. That disapproving <laughs> stare, you see it in the movie. Um. Uh, you play the evil witch as well. You know, like at the end, you're the evil witch. Uh, what was uh, that? Was the first time you ever played two roles in a movie? Now I know it was a small role doing that, like just like that one scene at the end. But how was that? How did that feel to play two roles in the same movie? Um, I mean, t- technically, yeah, I guess it was two roles. I just always thought of the witch as like an extension of herself. So that makes sense. I thought of it kind of as the as the same role, but you're right. Um, Honestly, that, because I was, when we filmed that, when we were filming those scenes, we filmed the end all at once. Uh, So I was in the middle of Nervous Breakdownsville on the Natalie end, and then had to go into um, weird Kubrick stare 
mocking, terrifying clown laugh on the other end, um, which is just two sides of the same unhinged coin. Uh, so it, it really wasn't that much to, uh, to switch. Although it was fun because the, uh, the fly that you see flying around when I'm sitting there doing my creepy, creaky stare laugh and pointing, uh, that wasn't put in there in post. That was just a fly flying around and we happened to catch it in that moment. We're like, well, this is perfect. Yeah, it definitely paid uh, off. Little co-star there. Did a good job. Had a little cameo. And then I was just saying uh, the naval phone, was that as heavy as it looks? Oh my goodness. It was so heavy. Um, And I had to try and huck that thing into the water. (laughs) (laughs) At first uh, I looked at Chris and I'm like, so like how hard can I throw this thing? And he's like, Oh, just throw it really, really far. And I'm like, but what if I throw it out too far and you can't go get it? Cause uh, he was the one that had to, had to go get the, the phone. And he's like, don't worry. You can't throw it that far. And like, I'm six feet. I lift weights. I'm a pole dancer. I've got, I've got upper body strength. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to huck it. And I, it was the most pitiful thing. I was so embarrassed by myself. (laughs) So that's as far as she goes. Um, but it was also like just the weight was balanced weird because it's a phone. It's not a solid piece of equipment. Um, so it was awkward to throw, but yeah, it was, it was heavy. It was a heavy piece of machinery. I mean, it definitely looked like that. That was not light at all in the movie. No, that was, that was not my acting. It was just really heavy. And uh, did you find any difficulties working a film? Uh, There's a lot of times where it's just, it's just you by yourself and not somebody else to really uh, play off of. Um, no, I, like I said, I, I, I did a lot of modeling and a lot of naked news for years and that's just me on camera. Usually the entire time, um, holding a five to six minute segment on my own. And so being on camera in a lot of scenes by myself, wasn't the problem. The problem was that I couldn't talk because as you, I'm sure noticed, I do a lot of that. <laughs> I'm not used to being quiet. That was the hard part. It's just like brush the phone and don't say anything. Nothing? Nothing at all? Really? Okay. And uh, uh, you have Maldiction as an upcoming film of yours. And I think I saw it was in post-production and it's written and directed by Mm -hmm. Allie, who was also in it. Knows you're alone. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um. I'm not sure how much I can say. Uh, It is another horror movie um, written and directed by Ali, also starring Ali. Um, I play uh, the main character's older sister. Um, It is, I don't know how much I can say. I didn't discuss this with Ali beforehand. Um, 
that one is a lot of fun to shoot. Uh, there's considerably more dialogue in that one. Uh, and it is uh, the story of uh, some of the things we see and sometimes, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. What, <laughs> I'm trying to be cryptic, but not good at that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how much I can say. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it's fine. Good. It's good. It's very, I'm very excited about it. Um, it was my first time driving in 12 years. Oh, wow. I got my, I had to get my beginner's license all over again just for this movie, but it was worth it. And we, we hung out at a cabin and found mushroom circles and um, had a bonfire and uh, shot a movie. And it was a good time. And it's going to be amazing. I'm really proud of Allie. She nailed it. The script is so good. Uh, the crew was so good. Um, much bigger crew this time around. Uh, and everybody did a phenomenal job. Um the creepy elements in it just like still creep me out and it's going to be, I'm so excited for it to come out and for people to watch it. Uh, and I'm, I'm so proud of Allie. She nailed it and it's going to be amazing. And I believe that comes out next year, right? In, in 2022. I think so. Yes. I don't have any actual dates. So. And uh, do you have any other projects you're currently working on? I do. I am writing a screenplay of my own. It's a horror comedy about a cam girl that inherits some haunted furniture. So um, it's my first feature length screenplay. Allie's going to be in it uh, playing the ghost and uh, it's going to be fun. There's going to be um, blood and boobs and jokes and an eyeball that pops out. It's great. Sign us up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and where can people keep up online with you on uh, social media about any upcoming projects you have? Uh, I am at Overlayer B. So like a layer, the Overlayer. Uh, B-E-E on all socials. Twitter, Instagram, um, not Snapchat. Nobody uses Snapchat anymore. Uh, TikTok. And uh, we want to thank you again for joining us today. Uh, we've really enjoyed It Knows You're Alone. And uh, we look uh, forward to your upcoming projects. And hopefully we'll talk with you soon. Thank you. And thanks for letting me ramble. <laughs> oh, no problem. Thanks to the horror hounds and smokers out there. Thanks again to Chris Alexander and B. Dolly for joining us today. Uh, make sure to check out It Knows You're Alone on Full Moon Features. And I got to say, we had a lot of fun here on season one. And uh, thanks you know, thanks to everyone who helped and supported us. Uh, my fiance, Nicole, Drew's wife, Sam, uh, for supporting us. Josh for producing our episodes and making us sound so good. Uh, to Josh's wife, Kristen, for letting us steal him so he can edit our silly show and uh, we also got to thank Mel and Stephanie uh, Carcace um, they've really helped us navigate everything and get set up 
If you ever want to start your own podcast, check out their Hey Podcaster course. Uh, we want to thank David Howard Thornton for being our first guest, uh, getting this all kicked off for us. And uh, I think we'll definitely talk to him again soon. I mean, Terrifier 2's it's got to be coming out around the corner, don't you think? Fuck yeah. And uh, we also want to thank all of our other guests, Fuzz on the Lens Productions, uh, Jason and Michael Levy, Frank Farrell, Stephen Mena, CJ Graham, Tom McLaughlin, and Vincent Guastafaro uh, for being on our 35th anniversary of Jason Lives. Craig Loigren, uh, we're still going to go ghost hunting, roast a ghost, and uh, we'll, we'll see if you can convince me on ghost. Uh, you already got Drew on your side. <laughs> uh, Delaware's own Dave Sheridan, that was that was another fun one. Uh, Lyndon Porco, Alex Vincent, he was the first person to smoke with us on an episode. That was oh, yeah. amazing. Uh, let me see who else am I uh, missing here. Jason Brooks. Uh, Tom Matthews and his four fingers of Colombian dirt weed. <laughs> uh, Christopher Allender, Krista Barini, and David Vista for from the old ways. Vincent DeSanti, I believe he was our longest interview this season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Laura Marie Taylor in our brown panties. Uh, we definitely got some gummies for you at the next con. And uh, make sure to check out our podcast, Not the Final Girl podcast. Uh, Stacey Nelkin, Brandon Christensen. Jennifer Reeder, the Archduke of Nightmares, Psycho Gorman, Matthew Nineber, uh, Ian from 616 Entertainment, uh, and effects uh, legend Gabriel Bartalos. Uh, make sure to check out our social media, our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, at High on Horror 420. You can always email us at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com. Make sure to check out our website, highonhorror.com. Uh, you can get uh, you can go there to subscribe to our newsletter and you'll get the latest guest announcements and episodes delivered directly into your inbox and we will be back with you all full force with episode 21 on january 10th like i said make sure to follow us on social media because we're not going to be going away fully we'll have a review for resident evil raccoon city for you on november 29th and uh, we'll have a christmas episode as well and uh, we'll pop up from time to time with some reviews for you. And I guess that'll about wrap uh, the season up. Yeah, what a fucking season, man. Yeah. We did it. What a season. Two little dudes from Delaware. Holy shit. I'm proud of this body of work we've done. What a great season, man. It's an honor to sit next to you and do this shit. Oh, yeah, I'm proud, of, I'm proud of us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And we'll catch you in well full force we'll catch you in january but uh you'll see us from time to time catch you later bye everybody thank you for listening <laughs>